This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. sitting here with another episode of mentors for military appreciate you guys listening in and got the sidekick paul martinez what's up paul hey guys how's it going so we've got a special guest today um chris i really first off chris van sant thank you so much for coming to the show thanks for having me guys and you flew a hell of a long ways to get here so i really appreciate that as well yeah um, i'm glad that i had the flexibility to do it and people that support it i just think it's better in person man i'm a lot more comfortable when i can look at somebody and talk to them totally is and that's what we were just kind of talking about pre-podcast is about how much better it is when we do in person of course coronavirus has ruined that for all of us and so um when we get the opportunity to do these types of things we want to take advantage of it for sure i happen to and i mentioned this off air listen to you on another podcast and um you've done several but your story is pretty amazing and i can't wait to dive into it because there's so many things that we want to unpack and and peel back and everything uh because i think there's um a lot of uh, veterans out there that also need to hear the message um there's a stigma that's available you know that's out there within whether you're on active duty or even when you come off. And so we're going to unpack and get into all of that and maybe um, provide some ways in which, you know, we can help guys as well. So your career, you started off, of course, you went into the Army, but where is home? Is it Arizona or? No, I was born and raised in uh, Dover, Delaware. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, joined the military out of high school, 18 years old. I, I think I was one of those kids that, I uh, was looking for a challenge, was looking for something else. I knew uh, I needed some structure and some discipline. Um, I was a little bit of a wild child. Uh, and at the same time, I grew up I grew up with two veteran grandfathers, um, one of which in particular, my mom's dad. Uh, I think I got him at a point in his life where he started to share some stuff from World oh, War II. Really? And um, that's that generation just didn't do it. No, they didn't. And he didn't his whole life. And I know all this stuff now, but I didn't know it then. You know, my grandfather, very similarly, he spent time in the service, you know, World War II. He deployed and he was gone for nearly four years um, and it changed who he was as a person. He came home a different four man wow. than, than the guy that left. And he never talked about it. You know, he had some years with with drinking and things like that where he was struggling and, and they didn't know what it was yeah. back then. I yeah. mean, we're still figuring it out today. But I didn't know all that stuff till years later, you know, my mom explaining it. But by the time I got him as the youngest grandchild, he was he was a great guy. Like he had he had worked through all that and it was all of these years later and he used to tell me stories about World War Two. And I and I've said this before, he he told them with such um 
passion and appreciation. So even when he was telling a sad story, it was still like a good memory for him. And he talked about the people that he worked with. Like it was, it just, it felt like something that I wanted to be a part of that I wanted to experience. And I think that really impacted my like zero hesitation for, yup, I'm going to sign up and join the service. What did he do while he was in? He was actually in the army air corps. So pre air force, right. Um, before it became a service. Yeah. Um, and he was, uh, like an RTO, um, that dealt with aircraft and airfields. So mm -hmm. he was involved in the South Pacific campaigns. So he was attached to various units through for basically four years and a myriad of stories. He actually wrote a memoir that never got published um, that I really appreciated, but a lot of the family didn't like because he talked about a lot of stuff that they had never heard. Yeah. Um, but it's a very similar parallel. And, I, and it's, I think that too is why I'm, getting to the point in my life where I'm okay talking about some of those things because reading some of his words were helpful to me. Yeah. Um, so maybe some things that I say would be helpful to others. And that was just a generation, not just those that went to war, but just that generation. I mean, my mother, you know, there, it, there was secrets in the closet that they want to keep in the closet. For sure. Crazy little things that start coming up that they wanted to suppress and keep, you know, away. Yeah. Well, so and, when, when I read what he wrote, um, you know, my mom didn't like a lot of those things. She didn't know some of that stuff. And he was really candid. It was like this old man pouring out all this stuff on paper because he needed to. And I read it from a completely different perspective. Like I understood, like no one yeah. else in the family did. I'm like, well, and I didn't even say this to him at the time, but I'm like, yeah, but you guys don't understand. Like he, he was, he was different. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of stuff. He didn't know if he was going to come home time and time again. And that changes you as a person. And yeah, it changes the decisions that he made. And it doesn't mean that he's proud of it, but it's it's part of his journey. It's part of who he is. And he didn't mind pouring it out like that. So I, I, I thought it was cool. But anyway, so yeah, so I grew up like that. Um, suburban kid in Delaware, uh, was an athlete. Um, I, kn I knew I wanted to go in the service probably my junior year of high school. Um, and I wasn't sure which one. So I, you know, back then you didn't really have anything other than like the pamphlets from the recruiting stations and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I, I, you know, like read some stuff and, and like tried to learn as much as I could. I asked people that I knew that were in the military. Uh, I had a classmate who had a, a brother that was a combat controller okay. in the air force. Um, and he got me like paperwork that explained like the CCT pipeline. And I was like, this is cool. <laughs> Like I can, I can go, yeah. I could jump out of planes. I could do all this yeah. stuff. And, and, and like, I think I said this to my mom, I'm like, and I'll be a certified air traffic controller. So if I decide to get out of the military, I've go got a job, you know, yeah. you know, like, like a 17 year old kid knows anything yeah, about right. anything. And so, yeah, so I, 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 you know, I think my parents advice or something was, well, you know, talk to all the recruiters and, and see what the deal is and figure out what you want to do. And I knew I wanted to do something in special operations. Yeah. Like I just had that. I, I always wanted to push myself. I always wanted to be. What brought that? Was it like movies or? I think it was movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I said. Was there it, one special one that stood out? <laughs> I or? said it as a joke one time, but, uh, you know, I, I grew up with, with Chuck Norris and Lee Marvin in the Delta Force movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the Navy SEAL movie with Charlie Sheen and Michael yep. Bain. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> You know? It's too funny because those movies um, and a few others like Rambo and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Are, I have so many people that say that that was the catapult right there. It was like, oh, man, I watched that. And it was like, oh, that's that's exactly what I want to do. I want to go do that. Well, I mean, like, you, you couple Hollywood with some with some true life stories out of some family members yeah. that maybe, you know, didn't do sexy Hollywood stuff. But somewhere in the middle, your brain went, okay, it's still pretty cool. Like if you, if the yeah. truth is somewhere in between those two things, like, yeah. that's not bad. Yeah. 
Um, so, so I did, so I went to the recruiting station and it was a, a combined one, you know? So oh. they, and I think you did some recruiting times. So. I did do that. And I, my mother gave me the exact same <laughs> advice, by the way, you know, and I actually walked in the Marine Corps. Well, I walked down the hallway. Um, and the first guy on the right was an air force recruiter. And he says, what do you want to do? And I go, I mean, I'd love to fly planes because you got a college education. I go, nope. And he's still messing with his filing cabinet. Yeah. And I'm standing there at his doorway and I go, well, I guess that's over. So I walk, walk the next and the uh, Navy guy jumps up. My dad, I'm, I'm a Navy brat and everything, wore the damn bell bottoms and everything else. And so this guy jumps up and he's got his whites on and the whole bit. And I go, no, nah, man, I'm not even interested. You know, <laughs> kept going. This is so similar. You have no idea. <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. And I get to the Marine Corps guy, right? And he's like, yeah, you, you know, you want to go Marine? And blah, blah, blah. And he's giving me all these pamphlets. And I'm about ready to walk out of the building. And I go, shit. My it's- mom told me I got to go talk to all of them. I better do that or, you know, I'm going to be lying to her. Turn around and walk to the Army. The guy takes... Five minutes in talking with me tells me I'm not going to get guaranteed anything on those papers, you know, any of those documents. Takes my pamphlets in the Marine Corps, drops, drops them in the trash can, right? And he's like, man, you want to go Army. And he goes, as a matter of fact, you probably want to go infantry and ranger and all this kind of stuff. And I, I didn't know what the hell that yeah, was. Right. I'm, looking, I'm looking around. They have all these cool posters and stuff. And uh, yeah, but anyway, that's my story that ended up going. And then later on, I'm the guy that's doing the exact same thing. So similar. So I walked in again. The only thing I had really gotten any depth of information on was this Air Force path. So yeah. I, I went to see the Air Force recruiter. And I swear the guys are carbon copies to what you just said. <laughs> and I walk in and, and the guy, he's not he's not exactly the most physically fit individual. Yeah. And, and that kind of put me off because I had this image in the military, you know, like yeah. fit guys and whatever. Right. And uh, so, you know, I start talking to him and, and he's like, you know, what are you looking at doing? And I, and I explained what I wanted to do. And he kind of laughed, you know, and I was this little skinny kid. I weighed like 135 pounds, like yeah. soaking wet. And that bothered me that he, that he laughed. And so he's like, well, you can't just go straight into that. You have to pick a different career field and then you have to volunteer and blah, blah, blah. blah. So I was like, okay, well, I appreciate the info. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be back. So I literally left his office and I went straight into the Navy recruiter. And the guys, you know, same conversation. I said, I want to be a Navy SEAL. (laughs) (laughs) And he didn't laugh, but, you know, he was he was like your typical Navy guy. Like he was kind of squatty in his uniform. He had a little Hitler mustache, you know, within regs, which (laughs) are horrible. And and he tells me about buds and how the program works. Same thing. Got to pick a job in the Navy. So I asked him a few more questions. I said, so what happens if I'm not successful in buds? He goes, well, then you'd go do whatever career field you picked. And I go, so then I'd be like on a boat or something. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, all right, well, I got some things to think about. I'll come back and talk to you later. <laughs> That's what I did with the Navy too. Yep. So, so then I go in the army recruiter office and the guy, I think his background was, was he was a logistician or something like that. And he said, what do you want to do? And they had an army ranger poster on the wall. And I said, and I had, I somehow I had read in the pamphlets or whatever that you could get a, a ranger contract. Option 40. Yeah. He, yeah. And I was like, I'd like to do that. And he's like, well, we don't have any of those available. And he kept trying to talk me into doing supply or something. Mm-hmm. And, and he's like, you know, you had good ass fab scores. You know, you could do anything you want in the army. And he's and he's pitching it. And I'm just he, like, no matter how many times I try to steer just him in a different like, Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. I want to be an infantry guy, man. Yeah. I want to be an airborne ranger. I want to be a special force. Like he just was not having it. So I got kind of frustrated with it. And the army office was the biggest of the bunch. So they had like, I don't know, six or seven recruiters and they covered all the different school districts Mm -hmm. like in the area Mm because it was a centralized recruiting place. So everybody in the office can hear this conversation with me and this guy. So I get up all dejected and I'm like, well, I guess I'll go try the Marines. So I go into the (laughs) Marine recruiter office. Now the army guy had told me 
he had dangled the carrot and gone, hey, there's thirty thousand uh, dollars. The sign on bonus. Yeah. yeah, the college fund or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Oh, um, you're talking about the uh, yeah GI was, Bill and stuff. Montgomery GI Bill, and then they had the college fund at the time, okay. which was separate. So it was you had the GI right. Bill, and then you had an extra thirty grand towards college. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. I was like, at least there's some incentive there, yeah. like where if, if four years doesn't work out, then I can go to college. I got some money towards school. And um, so I, I go to the Marine Corps recruiter and it's exactly like you said, you know, he's just, he, he is a fit guy, you mm-hmm. know, clean, high and tight haircut. You know, he looks really polished, like totally different than the rest of the guys. And I'm like, well, this dude's a stud. Like, you know, so I, he sits me down and he starts talking to me. He's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I, you know, I want to be an, an infantry guy, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, oh, that's great. He's like, perfect. We can do that for you. You know, da, 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 da. And I said, well, you know, I was like, yeah, I've talked to some of the other recruiters. Does the Marine Corps have any programs? Like, do they offer college money? Do they offer this? Do they? Offer? And I said three or four things. And he said, son, we give you the privilege of being a United States Marine. <laughs> Yeah. And I laughed. The classic line. <laughs> I, laughed. No way. I laughed. And he threw me out of his office. No. I swear to God. <laughs> he literally got up, pointed at the door and said, you can go. Wow. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> so, so here I am, you know, oh, that was the wrong reaction. So I walked back out in the hallway and I literally, you know, head down. I'm walking out of the building and this this little blonde haired guy runs out of the army recruiting office. And he's like, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And I'm like, yeah. And he like follows me out the front door and we're standing out front. And he said, hey, you know, my name's, and his name was Corey Deal. He was, uh, he was from the 82nd and then was on a recruiting tour. And he said, I don't cover your district and I'm not supposed to do this. He's like, but I listened to your conversation with Sergeant so-and-so. And he's like, I think I can, I can help you out. He's like, can you give me 15 minutes? And I said, yeah, I guess. And he's like, let me go talk to my boss and make sure that I'm good to do this. So he goes back in, comes out, gets me to say, hey, come in and sit down. So I come in and sit down, and he proceeds to tell me that, hey, we have an uh, airborne infantry contract. Um, so you'll be a 11 Bravo, and and we'll get you airborne school when he goes in. When you're in airborne school, and he tells me how you can volunteer for, mm-hmm. for the Ranger Indoctrination Program, and you can end up being an Army Ranger. And I said, okay, well, that that's great. That's exactly what I was looking for. And I said, well, what happens if the Ranger thing doesn't work out? He goes, well, then you're, you're an airborne infantryman. He's like, you'll get through airborne school. It's no big deal. I said, okay. So, and the rest is history. So I did that, um, thinking I was going to be 11 Bravo. I actually ended up being 11 Charlie. Yeah. Did they pull the switcheroo on you in basic? Were you 11 X-ray when you went in? No. Is that why? I was supposed to have a guaranteed 11 Bravo airborne contract. Um, and when I got to basic training, when we hit AIT, they, well, actually when I got to basic, they told us you're the 11 Charlie platoon and I didn't know anything. And the next thing I know, I'm training on mortars. And I'm like, well, maybe everybody does this. So the Bravo is doing the same thing. And I didn't want to say anything because yeah. you're in yeah. culture shock and you're in basic training. So I go all the way through it. And at the end of it, they pulled the guys aside that were going to airborne school. And I had orders for um, First Infantry Division. And I'm like, what? Like, this doesn't make sense. So by then, I'm like, well, I'm not just going to accept this. I'm not going to Kansas. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm, I already learned something that I didn't ask to do. Yeah. Like, I got to fix this. So I asked the first sergeant, and uh, and he pulled me in his office. He was a former recruiter, like, had his recruiting badge on his uniform, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And he did some digging, and he's like, yeah, they never, whatever happened with your contract, they, they had you as an 11 X-ray with no airborne. And he's like, but I can see where they amended it and gave you the 11 Bravo airborne slot. He's like, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He's like, I'm going to fix this and I'm going to get you in airborne school, but I can't fix the fact that you're 11 Charlie. So you're stuck as a mortar guy, 
but I'll get you to airborne school and you can volunteer to go to rip just like all the stuff your recruiter told me. Cause I was, I was like heartbroken. I was yeah. like, oh, this yeah. is terrible. And he did. And he did. So they fixed it that day. And I went on the bus over to airborne school. I think we did like Christmas leave or something. So I didn't start till right after, but, um, and then went to airborne school and volunteered for rip and ended up in three, seven, five. Now those guys came over and gave their whole uh, spiel, their briefing and the, the video. And they did, they did when we were in airborne school. Um, and I was stoked. Yeah. I was like, that's what hooked Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Paul wasn't Same. even thinking about it. No, I had orders to Italy. Yeah. Why, why would I stay in Fort Benning? Right. Why would I train more? I'm going <laughs> yeah. to Italy. It's going to be great. I'm going to be in 173rd. And then I saw the video and I was like, is this really that cool? And the guy's like, if you want to be the best, I'll see you on Monday morning. Uh, I was like, well, shit. Yeah. The best thing you can say to you. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. right? Yeah. No, no. What a hook. I mean, hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I went to rip and I, so I'll, I'll preface this before we go any further. Like I've, I've failed everything. Um, I've been fired from stuff. I, I like to say now I've made enough mistakes to figure out how to be successful. So I go to rip and, uh, we were there, uh, we're like two weeks in and we had, I don't know if it was a holiday or something, whatever it was, we had like a three day weekend, like yeah. in the middle of rip. Yeah. And they told you, you could only go within like a two hour radius or something like that. And we were young kids and I had a bunch of friends that were in college um, at Clemson University. Well, it was a little outside of the limit. A little, <laughs> Fort Benning to Clemson. <laughs> what is that, like five, six hours? So again, I, <laughs> I was a bit of a partier as a kid and I hadn't really cut loose, you yeah. know, in all this time. So I was like, this is great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go up and see my buddies. Like I'm gonna be this <laughs> army ranger. This is gonna be really cool. So I go out to see my friends and I party in South Carolina all weekend with my buddies. And we got recalled during the weekend, and oh, I didn't know shit. it. Oh, no. So I wasn't where well, you used to have to write your number down at the CQ yeah. desk of where you were going to be or whatever, and they called and didn't get me. And so I showed back up on Sunday night or whatever it was, and there were about eight of us that didn't catch the recall. And they said, yeah, you guys are like in trouble. So you fell the first step. So we got screamed at. Ray Devins, if anybody knows Ray, he was the, the head cadre or whatever yeah. and he's this giant like he was an nfl lineman at one point like pre-army so he's a massive man but he has this little mike tyson voice <laughs> god probably pound me in the sand still to this day <laughs> but but so he's screaming in his high-pitched voice about how bad we are and <laughs> you're gonna be recalled in regiment you, you know whatever anywhere in the world 18 hours he gave the yeah. whole thing and so they told us they were gonna recycle us so i had to do it again so that was the first time in my career that i failed and I thought, man, is this is this really what I'm what I should be doing? But at least you made it all the way. Yeah, but it was a good lesson, right? And, yeah. And it, uh, I think, early on, it instilled that look, man, don't let somebody else like if you make a mistake, own it. Yeah. And then deal with it, and then figure out your path to get where you want to be. And so, so yeah, so I recycled and went back through Rip, and then ended up in, in Charlie Company three seven five. Yeah. So what what company were you in? I was in HHC. Okay. Yeah, I was I was also in Eleven Charlie. Not on purpose. They did the switcheroo. I'm switcheroo. like, I want to be infantry. I, mean, I think that's how they get 11 Charlies. Well, that's how they did 11 yeah. Mikes, uh, too, because 11 X, they used to come in 11 X-Ray, and they were yeah. thinking they're going to be a Bravo, and then all of a sudden, they back in the mechanized days, like, no, you're going to be a Mike. And it's like, what? You know, no, I didn't want to get on a Bradley. I wanted to, you know, go to airborne school, you know, get my chance at ranger school and all that. Once you became a Mike, you couldn't go to, um, back then, I don't know if it, you know, still was, you couldn't go to ranger um, uh, you could. Right. No, they, you could. Leg you rangers, could? Yeah. they called them, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
I couldn't remember. They just they, didn't jump in. They trucked in in school. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, oh, they, in the school. Yeah. yeah. They called them leg rangers. No, but the I talk about regiment. You couldn't go to regiment as a Mike. Oh yeah, I don't know. I don't. Remember. Yeah, I don't think you could. But yeah, the, the the infantry MOS was segregated, so you had eleven Mikes, which were mechanized infantry guys. You had eleven yeah. Bravos. You had whatever the hotels were tow yeah. missile tow, yeah. guys, and then you had eleven Charlies, which were were mortar guys or indirect yeah. fire infantrymen. And looking back, I'm glad that I did it. And, and like yeah. I, you learn a whole nother set of skills that relate to infantry and combat that mm -hmm. you wouldn't get in one of those other fields. Mm -hmm. um, and then same thing as eleven Charlies. Looking back now, yeah, mm -hmm. I got to serve in different units, like completely different units. So I got a much greater depth of experience as a soldier than if I'd have just been a straight 11 Bravo airborne infantry guy. I mean, there's guys in the 82nd yeah. and I did time in the 82nd, but there's guys that literally spend 20 years in the 82nd. They go away to Korea for a year and come back and then finish out their career. Like that's yeah. other than soft, that's really hard to do anywhere in the army. And it happens with regular 11 Bravos. Yeah. That's, that's what I liked about being in 11 Charlie is I deployed with every company in 375. So I got to know everybody. I got to see how everybody did it. And they so have a platoon in every, I never asked this question. So no, you you're, you get attached to the company. Okay. Yeah, so they yeah. used, they used to be when I was there, yeah. um, they called it weapons platoon. So yeah. you had your mortar guys and your anti-tank guys right. were in weapons platoon in the line companies. Yes. And then somewhere, in the 2000s, they changed it and they moved all of those dudes into HHC, yeah. and then they got tasked to okay. support the line companies. That I, I do remember a change happening right before I separated and retired. In um, but the, what you described there, we had like a, a weapons mortar platoon stuff, even in the CAV, you know, that was with us. So because uh, we were talking about that last night. After three seven five, how long did you end up spending with three seven five? A year. Okay. Um, again, what, I made a lot of happened? mistakes in my life. <laughs> uh, I've told this story before, but I, I got a DUI. Um, I was driving a buddy home from a bar, and I, you know I'd had a couple beers, but not a lot, so I was the one driving, and he had gotten a, a, a dear John from his girlfriend back home from being away, and and was sad, and so I drove him home, and uh, we actually got in a fender bender. Um, I was driving and a lady stopped on a yellow light and I just barely slid into the back of her and a, and a officer was driving by and saw it. So he pulled over uh, and it's, it's whatever it's, it is the story. But I, so I got RFS, I left regiment about six months later. Um, and because I was 11 Charlie, I could go pretty much anywhere, um, anywhere there was an infantry unit. So mechanized infantry had 11 Charlies, yep. airborne infantry had 11 Charlies. Like it could have gone anywhere. Um, and I think out of convenience, they sent me to third infantry division, um, Kelly Hill. So I was still on Fort Benning. Oh. Um, so that was a massive change of pace. Yes. <laughs> well, not as bad as if you had gone to like uh, 29th infantry or something like that, trade oxide. But, yeah, you know. yeah. And I, I, I was crushed. I yeah. mean, uh, that was my first like sort of major major mental challenge you know being recycled and ripped whatever yeah like it happened i screwed yeah. up but at least they didn't kick me out right um but yeah they they at the regimental policy was if you had an alcohol related incident you had to leave and so i did so i you know i thought it's over yeah. like i'm getting out um turned out to not be a bad thing um yeah. what year is this this is 97 okay so uh i had just left there Oh really? Yeah. At, on on 
not at Kelly Hill. That's I was Stewart. at Splinter Village at that time frame. Oh, oh, yeah. That time frame, I was doing in-service recruiting. Okay. So taking guys off active duty and putting them in the reserve and guard and stuff. Well, you, and, so you know what Kelly Hill was like. Oh, though. yes, I do. Yeah, yeah I mean, definitely during that time frame. I also know what regiment was like because I used to, that was my unit that I supported. So I went over there all the time as well. So I, I know both those worlds for sure. Well, like regiment, when, when guys did stuff wrong, they just left the regiment. You never saw them again. A lot of them yeah. came to work for me. Right. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> or somewhere. There's a lot yeah. of great dudes that left the regiment over the years hey, that went absolutely to do great things for the army yeah but but you didn't they didn't stick around well when i got to to kelly hill to third id we had a brigade commander at the time because it was one brigade it was third brigade of third infantry division the rest of third id was at fort stewart as mm -hmm. you know and uh our brigade commander was a guy named colonel shook and he had an entire company of dudes that had gotten in trouble and gotten article 15s or whatever and they put them in tan um like flight suits, mm -hmm. like like work really? suits, and we called them Shook's Crooks, and he used them for barracks maintenance. So he had them like repaint the old barracks, like when they would remodel, to save the army money and to employ all of the the problem children. Oh so my god! You would do your time wow. if you did something wrong. You would do your time in Shook's Crooks, and then eventually you'd work your way back into a line company. So you want to talk about a different experience. It oh, was like, it was like you had so convicts on the street oh my in God. these uniforms. It was crazy. It's different. I mean, and that was in the nineties. Like yeah. you hear about that stuff from the eighties and seventies. Oh yeah. Because back then we had CCF and you know, that's where a guy I was telling Paul, you know, basically, I don't know if CCF still exists or if it was in the same form, but back then, if you had kind of a, a guy that messed up and he needed to be corrected, yep. this is where you went to, you went to the correctional, um, you know, unit and stuff, CCP. And so they would, they would walk around or CCF. I mean, they'd walk around and, you know, left, right, CCF, you know, and all that. You'd hear them all the time, but they're the guys with the swing blades out there and, yep. you know, doing all these types of things. And if you were good, you got a chance to go back to a unit. Or if you were really bad, they might resucker you through basic training again, you know, and if you're really, really bad, well, they just booed you out. They booted you out. Yeah. 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 And that's, and so that's what it was. So it went to third ID. Um, we deployed right away. We went to Kuwait um, on a six month deployment. And it was in support of, of what they called then Operation Desert Thunder, which mm, that was after Desert Storm. After Desert Storm, we were patrolling the skies above Iraq. Um, it was restricted airspace. And then we were doing show of force maneuvers in Kuwait for mm. several years. We actually got expeditionary medals for that, if you believe that. Wow. But, but it was awesome because I deployed with this mechanized platoon. And when you're back home in a mechanized unit, you're doing maintenance on the vehicles every Monday. Like, it sucks. And, and they don't have the kind of money and resources that regiment has. So they just don't train. You're going to go to the range like, like twice a year. If that, yeah, you get to break track, sweep in front of your track. It's miserable. It is. <laughs> but, but in Kuwait, it was different. They had all this ordinance over there and stuff that was stockpiled. From, so we did live fires yeah. the, for the whole six months. I mean, yeah, we wow. filled sandbags and lived sure. in tents and it yeah. sucked. And, and, um, but it was cool. And I, I really enjoyed that time. We were on the old four deuce mortars, like track mounted, mm -hmm. so, you know, you drive around and do, mechanized maneuvers and you know drop these big bombs and i thought it was really neat got to learn the fire direction control piece and it was easy to excel in yeah. third id i i was a super motivated young kid i was good at pt mm -hmm. i could run and if you could run in a regular army unit yeah you were you you're were kind of a god you're kind of a god <laughs> <laughs> so like, wait, you like this like, yeah. yeah it's not that hard so i made a name for myself as, as just kind of being a performer and a hard charger and yeah i had some good leaders and some bad ones but for the most part i had some good ncos just a different breed than than what I had in regiment. Oh, most definitely, yeah. And uh, I was coming up on reenlistment, and uh, our battalion commander at the time, Colonel Lee, um, I was going to get out, and they actually, my platoon sergeant said, the battalion commander wants to see you. 
And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, he wants to see you. And I'm like, about what? He's like, he wants to talk to you about reenlistment, which I don't, I don't know if they still do things like that, but it was pretty unique to me. Not battalion time. commander. I mean, typically maybe, you know, the first sergeant is CEO. Yeah, right. And wow. so, and we were in HHC, so yeah. we were, a li- you know, a little closer to yeah, sure. kind of everybody. The leadership knew more of the kids in HHC, I think, than they did in the line companies because right. there was less of you and you were centralized. Well, you get to know like S1, S3, yeah. S4 guys. And, you, you do. Yeah. And, and the mortar platoon in the mechanized infantry battalion is huge. Like mm-hmm. it's a bunch of guys and it's real rank heavy. You have an E8 master sergeant, your platoon sergeant, you have two E7. So they're pretty senior guys. So anyway, I end up in front of the battalion commander and he's like, you know, talk to me like what are you going to do and i i tell him the story uh yeah. i wanted to do this i got rfs out of the regiment for getting a dui i got a letter of reprimand when it happened you know my understanding is is gonna i'm gonna struggle for promotion you know nco promotions i was i think i was a sergeant by then yeah i was a sergeant e5 by then and i was like i like it i like the army i just i feel like what i wanted to do has been taken away from me because i made a stupid mistake and he said well what if i can help you with that and basically explain and i've laughed about this before but he's like i can move your your letter of reprimand to your restricted fish you know whatever that some s1 guy knows what that means right and so i i believed him and he said you know would you re-enlist if i if i took care of that so and told you that you didn't have to worry about it and i said yeah but i'm i'm not gonna re-enlist to stay here and he laughed and we had a, you know kind of like like he i think he knew, he knew he, right. he, <laughs> did, did, he, did he try to keep, keep his he no he didn't try to keep me okay. there he, he no he laughed and he said i understand and he's like where do you want to go and i said well you know i'm an airborne qualified guy i said i at least want to go back to being a paratrooper and he said all right he's like i think we can get you the 82nd if you tell me you're gonna re-enlist he's like we need to keep good guys in the army and it meant a lot to me and it changed the way I looked at the service. And I think that milestone for me, just leadership, having faith in you and yeah. not judging you based off your past mistakes. And senior leaders, you know, senior five. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that was when I transitioned from, okay, I'm going to make a career of this. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to get out. These people, wow. they've done something for me and I'm going to, I'm going to give back. You ever um, found him again? Never. No, I've said uh, his name a couple of times, you know, yeah. like you said, I've done a couple of podcasts. Colonel Lee, if you're listening to this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, the guy's probably a general and retired at some point, but yeah. super nice guy. He was just a good dude. Um, and he, you know, he'll probably never know that. Yeah. That one conversation. He oh, had with, one of these days he's going to reach out and he's going to be like, damn, I didn't know that I made that much of an impression. But you know, it, it that's, really works, right? That's, that's, and that's one of the reasons I, now it's why I like saying names yeah. because you, I want to know where those guys are. Yeah. Like I would love, I would love to reconnect with some of them and go, yeah, that thing you said to me changed my life. Yeah. Like, I hope you know that. Like all the things that I've done, those are all a result of that one conversation you had with me back then. Yeah. Or none of it would have happened. I know. So. I think about some of those people that made an early impression, especially during that same time period. And they were probably in their late forties or fifties or something of that nature. Cause they were your 20, 25 year guys. And, and I think, okay, where am I at now? Jeez, this guy's, he's probably gone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. Seriously. Cause we're all older now. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah. And it's sort of like, that's somber to think about. Right. Yeah. I know. Isn't it right? And it sucks because it's like, damn, why didn't, you know, technology wasn't the way it is now. Now you can almost reach out and touch somebody. Yeah. You had to be in that town and pick up a yellow, you know, white pages and stuff back in the day in order to find somebody yep. and or know somebody that lives in that area that can find white pages. And and here it is today. It's more likely that if you serve with somebody, somebody seven degrees away, you know, maybe less 
can reach out and touch that person. Yeah, absolutely can. And it's neat. Yeah. It is really neat. So you end up going to 82nd. And I'm going to 82nd. Yeah, Where'd you go in 82nd? 2nd, 325. Okay. Um, yeah, I was, uh, we had an outgoing mortar section starting, so I immediately took over as a mortar section in the line company. It was an alpha company. Um, that was great. I liked the 82nd. 82nd trained a lot. I really enjoyed it. It it felt like more of what I wanted to be doing. Mm -hmm. I was jumping out of planes again. You know, I love that. Um, people had different experiences though too because sometimes it could be more like a Kelly Hill 82nd kind of thing and then there was more that felt like a 173rd Ranger Regiment kind of 82nd so it yeah we were seems to be a little bit we were a pretty hard charging company yeah um, we had this uh, former British Army guy now US Army Mike Iyer he was at 4th RTB for a long time okay but a little short angry British accent, yeah, asshole, <laughs> and awesome. but but in a good way. Yeah. And he crushed us all the time, yeah, and, and loved it. Um, hated me, you know. He's always yelling my name, that that, in his little British accent. <laughs> and uh, as a section sergeant, you're kind of like a platoon leader and a platoon sergeant at the same time. So I had my mortar section, but I had to go to platoon sergeant meetings and I had to go to platoon leader meetings. Oh, geez, you were in meetings all the time. So, you, but you got to know you got to know all the new lieutenants. You got right. to know the company commander well. You got to know the first sergeant well. And I, I think I was always an against the grain guy. So like we would be in like the platoon sergeant meeting with the first sergeant, eighty second. Even though we trained, we did a lot of like waiting on the word. Like you hear people say that. Yeah. So they would be like, you know, don't release your guys. You know, platoon sergeant meeting at five o'clock, and you, you know, put out the poop as they would say, <laughs> and then and then you can go put it out to your platoon and release your guys. Right. And I would be in the meeting, and I would be like, I, I mean, I think I'd only been there a few months, and I'm like, hey, he'd be like. You know, what are you guys doing, Van Zant? And I would be like, I cut them loose first, aren't? And he'd be like, What? Why did you cut the guys loose? And I'm like, Because every day we do this meeting and you don't give me anything that matters that I can't call them and tell them on the phone. Right, so, yeah. like, we trained hard all day. I cut them loose. And he would scream and yell at me. But he knew, like, he saw, like, the, the time and energy and effort that I was putting into the section. And, and they were, those guys were well trained. Like, yeah. I, I love that stuff. Like, I love training. And so he, he would get mad because he needed to do this big show of thing. But he didn't do anything about it. Um, so, yeah, so spent some time doing that. Um, did you go to jump ma jump master school there? Because everybody, I did. everybody I goes 82nd. That's I did, the big thing. yeah. Yeah, I went to jump master school there. Um, yeah, 82nd jump master school is, that's, that is one of the more challenging courses I think that I've ever done. Really? Okay. Yeah, they just because they're so meticulous and hard on you about it because it's such a part of the culture there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went to Freefall Jumpmaster years later as a part of Special Mission Unit, and it was like, you know, JMPI and your buddy, and your buddy's great. Like, yeah. it was not the same thing. Yeah. I'm not saying they didn't take it seriously, and it wasn't important. I'm just saying they didn't apply the level of stress that they put yeah. on you in, in Static Line Jumpmaster in 82nd. It's still like that. Like yeah. We, that school is feared. Like, you can graduate Ranger School, and you're, you know, 3rd Battalion, and you're like, all right, Jumpmaster's coming up. It's a brag. And everybody's like, ah, we'll get it yeah. on the next one. No, it's no yeah. joke. Wait for the bending class. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, um, so I get, you know, to fast forward a little bit. So this is pre-war. This is all pre-9-11. Mm -hmm. um, again, I enjoyed it. Uh, I got, like I said, I got to know the platoon leaders and platoon sergeants all well. Made some friends. Um, uh, and one, I was kind of at a crux where... I was doing my section starting time and they wanted me to take the next step as a, as a 11 Charlie and they wanted me to move to HHC. So at the company level, you had 60 millimeter mortars assigned to the line companies 
at HHC in the 82nd, you had 81. So you had bigger guns mm. um, and they were tasked to support the entire battalion. So they would be fire support for whatever companies. Um, and I understood the fire direction control piece. I just really had no desire to move to HAC. Like I didn't want to be part of that yeah. machine. I felt like I had learned all I could learn as an 11 Charlie skills wise. Um, the rest of it was just leadership positions and mm -hmm. it really didn't interest me. Um, so I, I was kind of looking for something else and I had befriended a platoon leader, um, a guy named Paul Karen and didn't know anything about like Paul's background or anything. His dad, I knew his dad was in the army. His dad, he said, he always said his dad was a 12 Bravo engineer and you've heard me tell this. Yes. Time. And so uh, this is great. Yeah. And, uh, and so Paul, you know, he was a West pointer, uh, but he was a, he was a stud. He was a boy scout. He, he like, he wasn't like a regular lieutenant, you know, cadets come out of West point cadets come out of ROTC. Yeah. Very different. And they're very, back, back then it was, my experience was the same way. Yeah. The, the West pointers generally they were super annoying because they've had so much leadership training to that point that they try so hard to be leaders yeah. that they forget that they really need to respect and listen to the NCOs around them for, yeah. for guidance and direction. Yes. Um, whereas My the as well. whereas the ROTC guys tend to get along with their platoons, mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean that they're they're good at it or know what they're doing. <laughs> they were your Clemson buddies. Yeah, yeah, they were. <laughs> they were. <laughs> you know, and they were kids just like the rest of us. Yeah. You know, you, when you look back later on in your career, you're like, man, lieutenants are no wonder they're dumb. It's not their fault. <laughs> like they're young and stupid, just like I am, and they have even less experience at that point than yeah. you do. Right. And so, but Paul was different man he was he was just he was just wired different he was a deep thinker um loved training uh and he was just a nice guy but he always said his dad was a was a combat engineer and and so he's talking to me one day about what i was going to do and i was like well you know i, I want to go be an sf guy and he's like a green beret and i go yeah i go well eventually and because now i'm at bragg so you see right. all the people that run around bragg so i'm very aware of of everything i mean you, you got group guys you got right you know smu you got everything there. right 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 so i said you know i no actually i want to end up in in an smu mm -hmm. and he said well what you know basically what are you waiting for and and again like you've heard me say i laughed like now because i'm like why didn't i go how the hell does this lieutenant know anything about any of this but he did he yeah. knew a lot and i just thought paul's a smart guy whatever maybe yeah. maybe they told him about that when he was in westport yeah. i don't know and so he's like you know you can you can uh, apply and volunteer. And if they ask you to attend selection for the special mission unit here at Bragg, he's like, you could go straight there. And I didn't know any of that. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, any MOS doesn't matter. He's like, if you, if you make it through their selection, fine. And you go through their training pipeline. He's like, if you don't, he's like, then you can go to SFS, SFAS and be a green beret if you want. And I was like, wow, okay, well, that doesn't sound half bad. So, and I didn't tell it in the last one, but so what happened was I went to the recruiter brief for the special mission unit brag, um, took the PT tests, uh, whatever, all the psych about all the stuff that you have to do. And they asked me to attend selection and I trained and trained and trained and trained and trained <clears throat> and I went to selection and not knowing anything. Um, and I made it all the way through up until the, the last day before the, or the day before the last event. And that's, that's typical. There's two days, the day before that. And then the day that I got cut, those are the, like the big chop days where guys that, as they say, have failed to meet the time standard get sent home. So they pulled me that day. And I honestly, I thought I was crushing it. Like I, I was good at land nav and, th and that's the medium that they use in that particular selection course. And, 
I was running all over the mountains and, you know, we had yeah. snow and, but I, but I just felt like I crushed it. Felt like I was fast. And I was, I was a, a PT stud then mm-hmm. again, young, skinny yeah. little kid, but I could, I could run and I could move out with a rucksack. And I was 11 Charlie, which, you know, yeah, you carried so much weight. So yeah. to me, the rucksack weights, even though they progressively go up throughout the selection course, it really wasn't a big deal. Like I was used to having yeah. a mortar base plate and radios and all this stuff. So Rucking was rucking. It probably wasn't even your basic load. It, no, it wasn't yeah, even it's, close. It's weight, no, yeah. it wasn't even close. It was about half of the weight, you know, yeah. of what I was used to jumping out of a plane with. So <laughs> I smoke through this thing and I get pulled and I'm and I'm all disheartened. And it's the second time now I've tried something and, and failed. And I guess the saving grace out of that was they said they were very positive in my exit interview and they said, Hey, we'd like you to come back. Um so I came back to the to the line company and uh that angry British first sergeant that I had, Mike Iyer was like, I fucking told you so. <laughs> Cause when I put in my packet, you know, the 82nd is like regiment. Yeah. Like when you're in regiment and you say you yeah. want to go to SFAS, it like guys don't like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. like, like yep. you, you should be here. This is the best place in the world to be. Why would you want to go anywhere else? And it's almost looked down upon, especially yeah. back then it was frowned upon to like try to go on to other things. Right. And he was like that. He was very hard on me and was like, you know, you're not going to make it. They don't take people like you. You don't have enough experience. Like all just, it was just bad. Yeah. Um, in hindsight, I think he was trying to motivate me. Like he was trying to light a fire. I don't think he was actually being negative. Yeah. But at the time I didn't take it well. So I come back all disheartened and Paul's like, what happened? And I tell him and, and he's like, well, you can go back. Right. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, all right. I was like, yeah, but now they're going to want me to move to HAC. And he's like, well, I'm getting ready to go over, take the scalp platoon. He's like, why don't you just reclass 11 Bravo and come take a team in scouts with me. And I'm like, what? And you know, how do you do that? And he explained, and again, I don't know how the Lieutenant knows all this stuff, but he does. <laughs> and all it was, was a 4187. It was a lateral transfer basically. Um, so we fill out the paperwork and the commander signed it and yeah. I became 11 Bravo. And because I was an E5P and points were maxed out for 11 Charlies, they were like 798 yeah. or whatever. So it was hard to get promoted because there's so many less of them. 11 Bravos, there's so many of them. Points were like 499 <laughs> or something, which I had that. So yeah. I was immediately promoted to E6 and I became 11 Bravo. And then I transitioned over to the scout platoon and I took a team, which was unheard of for an 11 yeah. Charlie. Um, and that was awesome. So Paul and I worked together for a while. I waited a full year to go back to selection, but I knew like that whole year. So I was really motivated at work because I was trying to stay fit and PT and do all that stuff. Um, so I enjoyed it. And then I was working with guys that were much more like-minded. Like the scalp platoon was like, they were like the renegades. Like they were really good at their job. They were all PT studs and they cared about work, but they also were a little bit of a rule breaker group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I kind of like that. Yeah. Like a little rough around the edges. Like <laughs> if, if you yeah. ain't cheating, you ain't trying, you know? <laughs> right. Right. And so, you know, we would do reconnaissance missions and they would be like, you guys have to do X, Y, and Z. And we would bend the rules and just to be successful, you know? Yeah. And, and, but I enjoyed that. And, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that like, no, I got you. Uh, and then, yeah. So I, then I went back to selection. Well, before that. Oh yeah. 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 Sorry. So, <laughs> so in that year, yes, I now I have a new selection date. I waited a year cause I wanted to go the same time of year and Paul and I were out setting up some training and we were coming back, um, from setting up that training. And he said, Hey, can we stop in and see my dad? I said, yeah, sure. And I'm thinking, his dad is a sergeant major in an engineering brigade and he pulled into the unit compound at Bragg and pulls up to the gate to the gate guard and I'm like what are you doing and he's like we're going to see my dad and I said 
what? I thought your dad was a 12 Bravo combat engineer. And he goes, well, yeah, that's, that was his MOS, but he's, he's here at the unit. I go, he's the unit sergeant major. He said, yeah. <laughs> and I go, oh, I don't, shit. Yeah. can we turn around? I don't want to go. I go, dude, I have a class date in like three weeks. Like I don't yeah. want to go meet the unit sergeant major. You're right. And he's like, nah, it's no big deal. Come on. So we, we, so we go in and meet his dad, Doug Karen. And that was the first time that I realized, um, that Paul was the Delta Force Sergeant Major's kid. You saw him in a different light for Completely. sure. Completely. Yeah. And, and it made sense. So then it became funny because then Paul would talk openly about it. He thought I knew all along and I never knew. Yeah. Wow. Like, I think he actually thought at one point I befriended him because, because of it. Right. And, but we figured that out that that wasn't accurate and. And then he would tell stories like like funny stories to me now like he, he you know the unit used to do um like a christmas event mm -hmm. and they used to fly santa claus a dude in a santa suit because his dad used to dress up as santa claus they used to fly him in on a little bird wow. oh, for the family. Awesome. right you know stuff they never do now right and he's like he used to tell a joke and he'd be like until i was like 14 years old i thought santa delivered presents on a little bird that's <laughs> awesome <laughs> Oh, as a kid, could you imagine? Uh, and it makes so, more sense. In so yeah, so we went in. We went in and met Doug, and uh, and uh, you know he was a man of few words, and he basically just said good luck, um, and not not like not positive. In a good not, way. No, no, like it was like, it was like good <laughs> yeah, luck. Yeah, you know, yeah, like whatever. in passing. And I just wanted to get out of there, uh, and I got to know Doug after that, and then uh, sadly, um, and I don't, you know, I did, I'm sure there's a myriad of reasons, but Paul left scouts he went to regiment he was a platoon leader in regiment for a while um and then he ended up when they stood up that uh, motorized brigade in fort lewis um he had a command there uh and then i think a combination of events and being at war years later he ended up taking his own life in afghanistan oh man i'm sorry to hear that uh, yeah um so th that sucked uh yeah. yeah i can't imagine for his family but i think and yeah, and I don't, I don't know that I should even speak to it, but looking back, I think he carried a lot of weight. Yeah. Like, you know, his father had done so much for the service and for yep. soft. And I think he put on himself, I don't think his, I don't think Doug ever did it, but I think Paul put on himself that he needed to be that much better than everybody else. And we have a train that's coming nearby. Yeah. Uh, and he lost some guys in combat, and I think it was a little more than he could bear. So, yeah. I think that first part, I could totally see having my own situation of a, a father who demanded a lot. I could see where even if it's not demanded, there's just that level of expectation that you don't want to let down a father that does that, you know, or has that kind of, uh, commands that kind of respect or puts that kind of requirement on you or anything um, yeah, so I can totally see that. Yeah, it sucks. He's one of those guys that, um, you know, now years retired, like my peer group on the officer side, like guys that I came up with, th those guys are all division commanders and stuff now. And mm -hmm. pa Paul would have been one of those guys, man. He would have been one of those guys that stuck around forever and, yeah. and would be wearing three or four stars right now. And he was probably in some ways being groomed for that. I'm sure. Yeah. You know, somebody was probably at least watching. And he was, you know, just wickedly brilliant. Yeah. Um, you know, he's one of the most intelligent people I'd ever met. Yeah. Um, you know, which made him weird, but I like weird. So yeah. uh, it made us get along. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, and anyway, uh, I, I went back to selection that next yeah. fall. 
Um, and now before that, you actually got injured. I did. I did uh, playing basketball. Was <laughs> it basketball? Yeah, the scalp team. We, we did so much PT that um, to break it up, like we would do like fun days. So we would go over to the gym there on Bragg, whatever Ritz Epps Gym or whatever the name of that place is, and they had a full blown basketball court. Yeah, and we would play like five on five basketball, and I sprained my ankle really bad. Um, so I had to teach myself how to tape, like you know. Uh, athletic tape your ankle mm-hmm. um so i taped my ankle so i could train the last couple months leading up to selection and then i taped my ankle every single day in selection to get through it and i've said this many a times but i really felt like i was slower the second time around i think i just made better decisions so typically in land navigation you know yeah. there's a bunch of ways to go from a to b the choice that you make in the path that you take to get there determines how many days you can do that in a row and how effective you are at it. So, mm-hmm. you know, taking the ridge line versus busting straight up the mountain or whatever. Um, but I think I just made really good decisions the second time around. I had yeah. to be, I had to be efficient. Yeah. Um, and I was definitely confident. Um, so yeah, so I got through it, went to the board. Um, and in the board, I was really young. I was 23 years old and they acknowledged that, uh, they brought up getting, you know, booted out of regiment, um, getting a DUI, like they addressed all those things that I don't know where they pull everything, but they had access to anything that had ever happened to me. And I asked questions about that. And I basically said kind of the same thing I said now, like those are just, those are bumps in the road. Those are things that help me figure out ways to get to where I want to be. Um, and overcoming those obstacles, I think is a, is a strength, not a detriment and helps me be a better person and approach new tasks with a more well-rounded view than I would have without that experience. Mm-hmm. And they bought it. So <laughs> <laughs> the rest is history. Well, I have somebody that's actually on the line that um, is a mystery gre- uh, guest I'm going to bring in. Oh, God. Um, so you're there, mystery guest? Yes, I am. Do you recognize the voice? I don't. Hi, Chris. Patty? Yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I do now. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm sitting here with some friends of yours. So you probably didn't know that Patty is basically a co-host. We don't have her photo up or anything. I didn't know that. No. She comes on a lot on the show and helps me out. And uh, so I told Patty, I said, you know, um, we've got some in-person shows. I'd love for you to come in. And she goes, I just can't make it happen. I said, I totally understand. You know, it was kind of quick notice. It's right after Thanksgiving, you know, the whole bit. And I started laying out the guests and she goes, oh, my God, I know Chris. (laughs) And I go, you know what? We could do a mystery call in. I've never done that on an episode. So here we go. So your timing is hilarious because (laughs) so uh, did you do that on purpose? So I (laughs) I graduated or not graduated. I got selected. Yeah. I went to the operator training course for six months or whatever. And so 9-11 happened right before I went to selection. We were the 9-11 West Virginia class. Um, And then I went to the operator training course for six months. And because the unit was already forward deployed, so they had deployed in the fall of 01 right after 9-11 and then had continued to deploy. So now here we are late spring, early summer of 02. And the squadron that I was assigned to had already deployed to Afghanistan. So instead of finishing out the pipeline like most guys i didn't finish the operator training course and then go to halo school Mm because i hadn't been i went straight to afghanistan so i went to halo school after i came back and that's where i met patty Collins. so patty has some interesting stories i'm (laughs) sure that she can share with us oh god (laughs) yeah um first of all thank you so much for having me and uh 
Chris, what I actually said when he sent, he sent me a list of three names and I said, oh, I really want to co-host with Chris Van Zandt. I love Chris. Um, <laughs> and, and he's like, do you want to fly down? And I was like, no. <laughs> um, anyway, he, he exactly, I said, I said, I have a couple of great Chris stories that are um, awesome. And I, and I started it with, I think Chris is one of the youngest guys to ever go through selection. So um, I was. that was a great segue. Yeah. I didn't know a lot of your beginning, although I've listened to a couple of your podcasts before. Um, but the story that I, I love to share is it was, it was you, big Jim mm-hmm. and, uh, Mike McNulty. Yep. And, um, that was my, that was my second, where was it? yeah, it was my second, where was I, where was I assigned? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I wasn't, I wasn't yet assigned with you. I was in another tier unit Yes, you were. and, uh, but you guys, there was a lot of mystique behind who you guys were and you were the first three I ever met. So, um, uh, uh, personal, right? Yeah. So let me add some context. So because, oh, yeah. so the SMUs do closed courses, um, out of, for Halo out of, out of a different location in Arizona. So they right. don't, you don't go to Yuma, like regular free fall candidates from mm-hmm. the army. Right. Um, typically there's, SMU heavy classes where it's guys coming from the Navy side, um, tier one unit and the army side tier one unit. So you're in your free fall class with basically a bunch of operators that just got out of school on, from one of the two branches. Mm. Um, in my case, because I didn't go, I didn't go with my class that graduated operator training course. I went later. There were three of us, all three guys that went to C squadron, um, that went to, another course it was still a closed course but it was kind of a hodgepodge from different elements so patty correct me we if called I'm, it we called it the clerks and jerks class clerks and clerks jerks, and jerks. Yeah. So, yeah. so so we had so here's you know the girl <laughs> yeah two of you right yeah and, and yeah, uh yeah. and um they were from a different special mission unit on the army side and then we had some navy cbs that support SOF, and then we yep. had we had a uh, Air Force, uh, what do you call the uh, PJ? No, 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 not the Blue Angels, the uh, Thunderbirds. Didn't we have oh. a th- we had a Thunderbird no, he, pilot? He, he was a Navy guy, wasn't he? Maybe he was a Blue Angel pilot. Because he was he was like um, at our higher headquarters. I think he was like the glow or something like that. Right. I, I can't remember, but I I didn't even remember him. But I I'm sure I'll pull out the video later and watch it and, and laugh. So yeah. how how a Blue Angel fighter pilot ready to say, ends yeah. up in our free fall classes beyond <laughs> me and you. But but to Patty's point, what is yeah. clerks and jerks? Yeah. So clerks it was an interesting class. The, the Mike, Jim, and I were the only three male operators coming from a special mission unit at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, um, and that yeah, so that Patty and I were in that class and, together. And to paint the picture further, you three had a minivan as your rental, right? <laughs> I'm driving so, a minivan today. <laughs> yeah. Not so, by choice. So the, the mystique of here's, here, here's these, these people that I had held up on a pedestal, even when I served with them, I, I thought there was, you know, great respect, but they also drive a minivan. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so, so my favorite story, which I've been dying to tell, and I know you know it was we, we had finished. We, I mean, the, the only reason we had to come in the next day was to like sweep the floor and get our, our certificates or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you came in. Do you remember the story? Nope. <laughs> That's even better. I'm grinning because I know this is going to hurt, but go ahead. Egg on your forehead. That was like, it was like a cartoon character, like bruise. Like From, someone hit you and it swelled someone, up like. Because someone did hit me. Besides, oh, I know who someone is. Right? And we're like, what happened? Right. And and it was Big Jim who hit you. It was. Because you were probably acting a fool based on everything you Right. And so like the, the picture, you're maybe like, maybe you're five ten, maybe you were like one seventy at the time. Maybe. And I'm probably Aaron on the side of like tall and big. Yep. And Jim was probably 
six four two forty. Uh, uh, maybe with his legs missing. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I, I did. So we we went out and had a good time. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Jim, Jim is a is a big teddy bear. He was a, he was a fantastic operator yeah. and a good friend. And like most big guys, he's sort of he was sort of gentle natured. And when you're the little guy hanging out with a big guy, you know, it's like, what are we doing now, Spike? And, and <laughs> so I was always like poking and prodding and we had had too many to drink. And I was like wrestling with him or something. And he we were in a car like driving somebody else was driving and I was like messing with him from the back seat and he in had in a minivan <laughs> and he had had enough and I, because I was drinking I didn't catch it like I didn't catch that switch yeah yeah and at some point he nailed me oh my god <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was one of those it was one of those like like single things yeah and then okay you hug each other and you're fine like i it, yeah. like the thump to the head made me realize i was being an asshole <laughs> <laughs> i can't believe you just brought that up <laughs> so i did i came in the next day to get our certificates whatever with this giant knot on my forehead yep yeah i was an asshole <laughs> oh that's a great story and I think that what's so cool about that is that it's something that you guys you know you can share together and then the memories of those individuals that you ended up serving with as well. You know, you guys use some names and stuff, but I think there were some really cool guys that you guys mentioned, you know, in that story and yeah. they did amazing things. Yeah, they did. They did. Um, yeah. Mike and Jim were both good friends. Uh, Mike, as Patty knows, we lost in 2005. Um, that was, <clears throat> yep. Yep. I did every time. Uh, yeah. Mike was a close friend. Mike was a good person. Patty knows how great Mike was. Yeah. Um, and yeah, good family. Yeah. Um, still in touch with his wife yeah. to this day. So Mike, Mike was the guy that when I met the three of you, Mike was what I expected when I, in my mind said, this is, this is what someone from that organization is like. It was, it was Mike. I mean, you were, you were all super talented in your own way, but, but Mike fit that mold. And, and I shared the story with, um, Rob that right after I got reassigned to your unit, and you guys were deployed and I was walking down the hall and I'd never been there. I was one of the few people that knew nothing about it. Just wound up there. I'm walking down the hall. Um, I see the Memorial court, which, which is one of the most amazing places in the world to me. And the last name I saw was Mike McNulty, which was the most recent one inscribed. And, and I didn't even know him obviously the way you did, but it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, wow, this, this is all very, very real. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I remember, I remember when you guys came home. I was like, I can't wait till these guys come home. They're really the only people I know, but I just can't wait till they come home. Yeah, I forgot um, that that was the year that you got to the organization. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, yep. interesting times. I remember the first time I saw you. I was like, What are you? What are you doing here? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> you already work for a special mission unit. Why are you in another one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Patty, I don't know if you remember. Not to jump ahead, but. Um, and I'm sure you guys know this, you know, Patty had an, an accident, was mm. hit by a car and yeah. Patty, you jump in whenever I was episode 182, just so you know, Okay, <laughs> <laughs> almost 80 episodes ago. So, um, <laughs> but, but you and I had a conversation, um, in, in your recovery before you decided to take the leg off. And I think I was the first person that told you to talk to Bobo, to talk to Bob Stanwood about his decision. Yeah, I think you're right. And, yeah. and so that's so, probably true. So for context, well, I mean, you, I guess you told your accident story on your podcast, yeah. uh, right, Patty? 
Yes. Yeah. 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 So, you know, she was recovery was a mess and we had some other folks in the building that had had similar things. Um, and a guy Bobo that we both know, uh, was working in the combat development directorate. He was a, a, an assaulter in a saber squadron and he fell off a building and shattered mm. both his ankles and was, you know, on meds and basically was never going to be the same. And the docs gave him a decision of, Hey, I can, we can just take that foot off prosthetics have come a long way and you can go back to be a fully functioning operator basically. Um, and we'll get you off the beds and, and Bobo made that hard choice. Well, now here we are a few years later and then Patty's mm -hmm. basically faced with that same choice. And, and we had a conversation and I said, man, this is like, you need to talk to, to Bobo. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and I, I don't know, you know, like, how do you say that? You should chop your foot off. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You know, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if I shared on the interview, my conversation with Bobo, but I remember we went to the library, which is another very cool room there. And, um, he was so great. And so Frank and I said, I need you to tell me the worst thing about it because I saw the good sides, right? I saw him running. I saw some of the other folks running and, and deploying again and doing things. I go, tell me what's the worst thing about it. And he was so frank. He said, um, when I get in a helicopter, I can't bend my knees up as close because the back of my socket hits my thigh. And so I take up more room than the rest of the guys in the helicopter. And I feel really badly about that. Like, that's what he said to me. And I looked at him and I was like, that's, that's the worst thing. Is yeah. that, and, and here he is like thinking about others, not even himself. And he's like, that's the worst thing. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a date. <laughs> I'm getting a surgery right now. Yeah. And you yeah. did. And it was, I did. I, I don't know if you know, like how impressed and proud of you. So many people were like to make that decision and then to come back and do all the things that you've done after that are, is just incredible. Like, I think <laughs> I hope you know what an inspiration you are to people that have had injuries like that. Like I, I've never had anything catastrophic, fortunately, but, but we both know a bunch of people that have, and, and yeah. I'm, I'm sure that you give a lot of amputees hope. Um, and you, thank you. And you, yeah. you made the choice. You didn't, yeah. you weren't forced into it. You, you had right. to make that decision, which is amazing. Um, I appreciate that. And I, and I give that credit back to people like, Bob and Brad and, and even, you know, going through physical therapy, I, she, the person that probably needs to be interviewed next is our physical therapist. Cause she was amazing yes, she was. Um, because nobody put any limitations on what I could or couldn't do. Um, and if I just said, you know, I want to, I want to do this again, or I want to do that again, it was like, let me help facilitate this and make, make it successful for you. And I remember my first jump back, um, the unit commander was like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, there's a jump. I'm going to be on it. Right. And I was joking around and I had like taped the bottom of my foot to my flight suit. Cause I was like, Hey, if this falls off, I'm going to injure someone with it. And then, but, but, but um, How did and, you get hurt? I got hit by a falling prosthetic <laughs> yeah. limb. And the joke from the unit commander at the time was like, I will do a report of survey and make you pay for that. If you lose it, like that was yeah. just hilarious. Right. So, um, yeah, but thank you, Chris. Well, yeah, I, I, had, I, when I you, when you, when you said, uh, you asked Bobo what, what the worst thing was, I, I don't know, maybe it wasn't the right time frame, but, but so Bobo, re, he deployed with a squadron post yeah. getting a prosthetic as an operator, um, back with the team. And it, it, it is different. Like you're not, you're not as, you can't do as many things right. like you used to do, but he did it, um, for at least a rotation. I thought he would have told you. So Bobo was a guy from Boston, from New England area, and he was a giant Red Sox fan mm. and he used to take his prosthetic off at night and his team took a 
New York Yankees oh. <laughs> just thick enough that he wouldn't necessarily tell because he didn't have a lot of feeling in his in his stump where he yeah. put it on. They put a Yankees logo in the bottom of his leg and he put it yeah. on. He wore it around all day. So when he took it off, he had this imprint of the Yankee logo on his leg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just wrong. <laughs> Imagine if you're a Red Sox fan and someone did that to you. Yeah. So I remember that. So we talked about McNulty. I think one of the, the things that might be good is this is right around the time frame. If I remember correctly, you decided that you wanted to go to SFAS and Q uh, to go to be a Green Beret because you, you wanted to, to move out of your current MOS. And this is something that you always wanted to do. And this was the, the perfect. Op- there was, if I understand it correctly, there was never a perfect opportunity. But if there, you know, this was the time that was decided. Yeah, the, it was. So, yeah, I had I had that. My first deployment with a with special mission unit was OIF was Afghanistan in O two. Uh came home, refit, uh retrained for a new mission set, ended up doing the evasion of Iraq um in early O three. Uh so that was a desert mobility mission. That was cool. A lot of stuff happened on that trip. <clears throat> Learned a lot of lessons, came home for a couple months, then we surged, then we went back over that winter. Um that was the rotation where we did capture Saddam Hussein. Um and the battlefield has started changing slightly before that. Uh, and then progressed into the next phases of Iraq, which was counterinsurgency, basically. Um, so did another rotation in uh, in early 04, post-Saddam capture, where we basically transitioned into counterterrorism work and, and hunting bad guys that were attempting to destabilize the country or to, you know, harm Americans or Iraqis. Um, and then I guess that led into summer of 04, we surged again in the fall of 04 um, and came back. So I had, you know, four plus a couple of slice deployments under my belt. Um, some really successful operations. We had had some tough times. We'd had some good times. Um, but I was a, an infantry guy. You know, mm-hmm. you could go to an SMU f- from any MOS. Um, and I loved what I was doing and didn't think I would ever leave the organization. But in the event that I chose to or I, or I did leave the organization, I wanted to stay in the soft community. So to do that, I had to go to the SF qualification course. And having been through the SMU selection, I wasn't required to go to SFAS. I could go straight into the queue. So basically, I just had to pick an MOS that I wanted to pursue, and I would start off in phase two or whatever it was then, small unit tactics. Um, hmm. We still had to do that. Okay. So yeah, I had a, had a discussion with the team after that last deployment. Um, and this is going into 05 now. And there, again, there was no good time to do it. Um, I think we were all a little beat down. That same team, we had done, you know, three or four rotations together with the same core group of guys. Uh, I'd basically done the same job. Like I'd been breaching and, and running and gunning with those guys for four straight years. And I was kind of tired. I didn't realize that I was tired, uh, at least that tired mentally, but it had worn me down. Um, and we had experienced some loss along the way, um, but nothing as a unit, nothing catastrophic yet. Um, I had, yeah, we'd had some ups and downs, but so I decided to go to the Q course in 05. Uh, I picked 18 Echo um, because they wouldn't let me go to the Delta course. I, I actually really wanted to do that, but it was too long. And they said, yeah, you're not leaving for that long. Um, and the Echo course had cut out uh, Morse code. So it was only six months long or whatever. So it was either. Is that one of those thank God things too? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm weird. I like, I, I wanted to learn it. So I yeah. was kind of bummed out when I found out they cut it out. Yeah. Uh, Cause it's an old school 
thing that absolutely yeah i just thought it was neat but i was a history buff and like that stuff you know the guys yeah. in the pow camp tapping yeah. code to each other secret decoder ring <laughs> stuff yeah yeah, yeah yeah <laughs> but uh yeah i didn't want to be an 18 bravo i didn't even learn about weapons i had plenty of weapons training yeah and i 18 charlie didn't appeal to me i didn't really want to build stuff and i knew more about bombs than i ever cared to learn <laughs> at that point so yeah. 18 echo i thought i would learn some things so i went through the 18 echo course and while i was in uh, my squadron deployed again <clears throat> um, and on that deployment, um, and I've talked about this on other podcasts before, but, you know, basically what happened while I was in the Q course was uh, I got a new guy that came to my team that took over his team breacher because I wasn't there, um, was killed that rotation, um, in your place, in my place, putting a charge on the door. Uh, and then sometime after that, uh, they hit a target and you know back then follow-on targets were a regular occurrence so you would hit the first set of buildings or building and it would be a dry hole as we say you wouldn't get the guy you were after and then intel or other information would lead you to bounce to another objective and you would do it right then and there so when you execute a follow-on target you lose the elements of cqb you lose speed surprise and violence of action basically all you have is we're going to go really fast mm -hmm. um, and be angry um, but they know you're coming, they know you're there, like that element of surprise that makes you successful without having to pull the trigger is now gone. Um, so your likelihood for getting in a gunfight goes up exponentially when you do a follow-on target. And that's what happened. Um, they did a follow-on target, um, and, you know, who was probably one of my better friends at the time, a guy named Mike McNulty, uh, and then another guy named Bob Horgan, who's a unit legend that had been there for a really long time. Mike and I came through school together, as Patty and I were talking about earlier, but... Uh, Mike and Bob were both killed on the same target, follow-on target. Uh, and then it went on even further. Um, there was another event where, again, I wasn't there, so I'm paraphrasing, but the troop executed an assault. Teams went in the house. Uh, there was an exchange of gunfire. Um, my team, that I wasn't there, uh, took the brunt of it. Um, what was my team leader at the time, even though I wasn't there, Ended up getting trapped in a room and trading rounds with a guy and then trading frags with a guy. Um, and Holy and crap. so Mikey, his name was Mike too, uh, Mikey Hefner, uh, took, uh, I think he had 71 holes or something in his body from frags. Uh, lived, you know, Mike's fine to this day and went on, went back to work and, wow, you know, continued on and he's retired now and, you know, doing his own thing and doing a great job. But uh, so basically in, in that single rotation, I lost... Uh, a guy I didn't know that was filling my shoes. I lost a guy that I considered one of my best friends in the organization that was very similar to me. He was a regular Army guy that came to the unit, so we had a lot in common. Um, we lost a, another unit member that I looked up to that was a, kind of a mentor to anybody who was ever around in Bob Horgan. <clears throat> and you couple that with the guys that we had lost prior, it was, it was just a really tough year, um, both for our squadron and then the squadron that deployed after us. Um, had an IED incident where they had some guys killed and a bunch of guys injured, and they were guys that I knew. Um, so 05 was just a overwhelmingly catastrophic year. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't know it at the time. You know, I've learned a lot and studied a lot. But looking back on that, what I was experiencing at that time from not being there um, was survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, didn't know what it looked like, didn't know why. And this was all kind of cumulative at the same time in my life where I talked about breaching, you know, I was a team breacher for a bunch of years in combat. Um, and this is before we knew anything about TBI or, or any of that stuff. But 
the long and short of it is, is I was repeatedly day after day in training and in combat, putting explosive charges on the door and blowing them in very close proximity to myself and my teammates. And that repeated exposure to low level blasts, ruptures, blood vessels, capillaries in your brain and is one of the things that contributes to traumatic brain injury or mild traumatic brain injury. Um, so I think that 05 stretch was where that stuff started catching up to me. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> everything from self doubt of, uh, fear of, is it my time? If I go back, um, if I was over there, would that have been me? If I was over there, could things have been different and those guys could have lived? I mean, you name it, it kind of all piled on that year. Um, and I think like most of us did then, I, I compartmented that stuff. I shoved it in a box. Um, I think we all learned that cycle of events and guys deal with it in different ways, but I was very much a compartmentalized guy. I mm -hmm. would take, whether it was trauma or good or bad or whatever, it all fit neatly into this little box in my brain and then I pushed it in the corner and I moved on to the next thing. Um, yeah, how do, you, how do you do that? You know what I mean? <laughs> like you're going through all this stuff and you, now as you're a civilian, you have, more civilian conversations. I'm always talking to people and they're like, hey, this bad thing happened and then someone got sick or they lost a job or something like that. And then they seem kind of stuck. And I look at my peers in the military and they have these traumatic events time after time after time and they're just trucking along. Yeah. And then they use their career as a metric and like, you know, I'm meeting all the gates. I'm getting promoted on time. I'm, you know, excelling. And so they kind of miss that. Yeah. I, for me, I finished the Q course um, and wanted to get back to the team. Uh, like I said, basically, my not only did I lose some friends and those things happened, but my whole team got shot up in a single rotation. Um, so I got back from the queue, and we had brought a guy over from another troop, um, actually two guys, and then we got a bunch of new guys, and we basically started from scratch. So for me, I took all of that trauma and drama, and I shoved it in a box and shoved it in the corner, and I went to my box of training and mission-focused, and I just threw myself into work and the guys. Um, and when it, you know, when it would start creeping back in, you know, at that point in my life, I, I was chasing it away with, with alcohol, with whatever, with things yeah. to focus on. Um, and that, like most guys experience, that becomes very destructive. You you're looking for ways to suppress the negative, and then yeah. you're also looking ways for ways to fill the void of of the adrenaline, um, which unfortunately in home station, we tend to fill that with drama. So yeah. we do things to tear ourselves down. We do things to create drama. We do things to create risk. Uh, it's almost self-destructive. Um, and that, that 05, 06 stretches, I think when, well, a lot of us, but me in particular, is when I really started experiencing that. So did you ever, like, get to a position where you you emotionally disconnected yourself from, you know, like, before that you may have built stronger relationships and everything else on the team and, you know, with the guys and everything. After that, did you find yourself just saying, man, I, I don't want to get too close because it yeah. could happen again? Yeah, Paul, Paul and I talked about this off mic, but, um, you know, the – the bonds that you build in the military are, are some of the best you ever will in your life. And typically speaking, especially early in my career, you know, you, you met and worked with people and you got to know guys. And certainly my first team in a special mission unit, we were tight. I knew a lot about them. I, they were friends, they were teammates. Um, we were very close, uh, post 05 and those events, I think as part of that compartmentalization, mm -hmm. 
I shut stuff out. Yeah. Um, I stopped talking. I didn't tell family stuff. I didn't tell friends. I didn't let guys in um, as a defense mechanism. Yeah. I mean, uh, before that, even with my home life, you know, leading up to a deployment and the time in which I started doing that until eventually I just did it all the time, the time leading up to a deployment where I would start shutting everything off. Cause I was a guy on a deployment and different guys do it different ways. You know, we had access and the ability to communicate with home whenever we wanted. Basically I didn't, I, I had two speeds, I had combat Chris and I had home Chris and I had, you know, two little yeah. girls at home and interesting. That was the only way I could do it. I couldn't, I couldn't carry them overseas with me yeah. to, to do what I was doing. Um, or at least mentally, I didn't feel like I could be as effective. I had to like yeah. shove them in the home box and I'll, okay, I'll go back to that mode when I get home. And when I'm at war, I'll be at, at war mode. And the, the scary part and where you now looking back, you realize you were becoming very unhealthy and it wasn't good for you. was that being at war was easier than being at home. And now, now I look at that and I'm like, wow, like that is, how did I ever think that would like, what part of me looked at that and went, yeah, this is okay. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I just want to deploy again because I feel better over there. Like that's scary. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's really hard. I remember being overseas and walking to the MWR and getting to the door and turning right back around. Cause I'm like, I can't take my mind out of where I'm at now. And it's easily justified because lives are on the line. If you're not hundred percent focused and you've hardened yourself to do this thing, that's basically impossible to go into these high stress situations where you're, I mean, you're, you're tempting fate every night or every day. And, and then you're supposed to go talk to your girlfriend or your wife or your family about the vacation you're going to take. But you just, I get, put, I so, you put somebody's boots up in front of a formation, yeah. you know, a day ago. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, that's kind of automatic. I also think we, we didn't realize, well, at least for me, almost every experience I had in my life was you face adversity in whatever form. It, you either win or you lose when you're faced with that adversity. And then how you react afterwards is the difference. And so you yeah. you suck it up, you pull your pants up and you move on. So I had built in this conditioned response to problems or adversity of, okay, I'm just gonna try harder. Yeah. And it yeah. was it was never about looking at myself and going, okay, how did that impact me? How do I feel? What is it doing to my life? How is it affecting my decision-making? I didn't know to ask myself those questions. Mm-hmm. I just went, it's a challenge. Uh, I have to get through this. Uh, I read a good quote the other day, the guy, George M. Moore, he was a World War II fighter pilot and he was like an ace in World War II and then post-war he had a, a horrible crash where he tumbled at the end of the runway and, you know, burn up in the wreckage and burn over 90% of the body, lost, lost both his legs and guy went, a, guy went on to be a motivational speaker. And the quote was, <clears throat> there's what is it? There's winners and there's losers. The only difference between a winner and a loser is a loser tried one more time. And I read that and I was like, man, that's like my life in a really simple sentence. What you just (laughs) said. That's a great like summary of what you just described before. Seriously. Like, yeah, like I've lost a lot (laughs) and, but I didn't, I never looked at it like that's it. I mean, the one time I did, like I was talking about back leaving regiment and I was all distraught and you know, that battalion commander brought me back and said, no man, like go be a paratrooper again. Like you can do this. Well, Mm -hmm. you can get, and that, that lesson 
carried through and I made lots of mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I messed up so many times and, but every time that's just kind of how I looked at it. Like, well, okay, I learned from that. I won't do that again, but I need to buck up and go do this. And I think I tra tra treated that stuff like that. Yeah. It was these catastrophic things happen. I feel this way. I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know how I feel about this, but you know what? There's winners and losers and I'm going to be a winner. So I'm just going to suck it up and fight through this. Yeah. And that's what carried me back. Um, but you know, eventually that gets to be too much because you're not doing the things that you need to do. And that box that you shove things in is only so yeah. big and sooner or later stuff's going to start spilling back out of it. I think that's what a lot of people, you know, that are struggling don't realize, you know, that, um, you know, we've had guests on that says, you know, yeah, I, I compartmentalize that. Um, there's a hard shell around that. It's calcified, you know, and we're talking about something 10 years ago. I don't know that I, I can open it up because it's been so long ago. And I think there's a bit of, I don't know if I want to open that up. It's yeah. calcified for a reason. It yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> and I still don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. I, I mean, I, kept things bottled up for a long time. I do find that I don't have catastrophic events now that I have learned how to be okay with it and to open that stuff up. So it doesn't, it doesn't spill over at a time when I'm not anticipating it um, because that door to that box is open for lack of a better term. Um, I think communicating about it is absolutely healthy. I think not being afraid to share that and it doesn't have to be big. It could be tell your spouse, mm -hmm. tell that person that's next to you, tell your teammate, tell somebody, look, this this is how I feel right now. Because once you start doing that, you find that there's so many people out there with similar feelings and experiences. And, and it might be from a different event, but how you're feeling is very, very similar. And when you start sharing yours and you start hearing other people's, that's like the first step to being okay with it all and not allowing it to build up to a point where it's catastrophic. We talked about that off air about just doing the podcast and how that's been for you, something that's been cathartic. And I've heard that also from other people that there was a lot of hesitation and anxiety before getting to the microphone. Of course, it's very, it's not natural to sit with headphones on and a microphone in front of you and then pour your soul out. Yeah. Uh, but yet when individuals just start talking about their, their life, their story and everything else, they may not even realize that a mic is in front of them, that somebody else on the other end is listening. And not only does it, um, have we heard back from individuals that said, oh my God, I got home and I told my spouse, I'm so glad I did that. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, you also impacted somebody that was listening. Yeah. And that's the beauty of sharing your story and, and you going out there and doing what you're talking about. So you giving advice to other people that says, hey, get out there, talk about it journal do whatever you got to do to get it out of your system and stuff they also need to know that when they do that they could very well help save somebody else absolutely yeah i mean you take not just the level of suicide that occurs is absolutely ridiculous i remember the first time i told someone that i sat on the end of the bed with a gun in my mouth um and I remember like looking at myself from the outside in thinking, I can't believe I just said that to another human being. Now, I don't have a problem with it at all. It's, it's like that winners and losers quote. Mm. Nope. Uh -uh. No, this happened. I faced it. 
whatever strength or however I got through that, that at the end of the day I did, mm-hmm. I moved on. And if me saying that to another human being that says, look, me, this regular guy that, you know, has messed up more times than he can count, that was fortunate and lucky enough to be a part of an amazing organization and surrounded by good people that lifted me up and made me better. And I got to do a lot of extraordinary things. If this guy that did that can get through that and can talk about it and be comfortable with being vulnerable and talking about it, then maybe they can too. And Mm -hmm. the podcast thing, it's, it's astounding, man. Like people don't, get it I don't think yeah um because it's really hard to do when you come from a community that doesn't talk um and yeah some of it's a little war story but you got to give some context sometimes you have to give people some background but the people that reach out to you after you say those things are incredible and that's what changed the game for me that's what made it okay as hard as it is to sit here and do this um even with like-minded people like you guys and and ones that have done in the past the the questions that you get and the things that people say to you are incredible. And you realize that we're in a day and age where just your voice and the words that you say can touch a whole lot of people and can change someone's life that second, whether it's motivating a young kid that's coming up in the service or law enforcement or whatever, or whether it's helping a guy that sat on his bed last night with a gun in his mouth. Um, that is powerful and that's worth doing. And it's why I will continue to do it. Now, that's the same for, for me, honestly, because it um, it was probably a couple of years ago, more in the beginnings of doing the podcast when I had somebody on. And and I remember sitting around the table with my kids and my family and I, I shared, you know, a bit of it and said, wow, I just, you know, I just did this episode. And and my, my family just had this blank stare. They were all looking back at me and they go, you got to keep doing this. <laughs> You know, and that's when it kind of hit me of, wow, you know, you think about it, you know, it, it is powerful. It's, it's a medium that we need to take. I know there's a lot of podcasts that are out there and stuff, but I think we're not going to break a stigma. We're not going to break a culture, you know, and change things unless there's enough people that do come forward and, and share their, their story and their journey and, and express that, listen, it's me. I'm, I'm still the same guy. I just happened to tell, you know, what happened and that it's not over either. No, not even close. And I think that's important for people to understand. Like, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm blessed and fortunate and I have a lot of great things about my life. My career is fantastic. The company I work for is fantastic. My wife is fantastic. I have a really good support system now and some great friends. Uh, My circle's small, but I have some great friends. But I still struggle. Mm -hmm. Uh, I still struggle with depression. That stuff creeps back in. Yeah. I, you know, struggle with an emotional governor. I have ups and downs and, um, you know, like we were talking about off mic, the difference is, is now because I've gotten help, because I've talked to people, because I've learned from people, because I've listened and then I've not been afraid to put myself out there and say those things and expose myself. Now I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. So when those things start to happen, I have learned healthy ways to pull myself out of it, to be that winner. Um, and, and to do the, do the things that I need to do to stay on the healthy path. Have you ever like think, stood back and just said, Oh my God, I have, everything's clear now. I have a lot of clarity and no, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 because you know, it's like, it's like anything else. It's like, uh, it's like shooting or it's like golf. Yeah. You know, I'll use the shooting analogy since the audience is probably 
all into guns, but yeah. you know, you're on the range and, and some guy, whether it's a teammate or an instructor or something like that, gives you some little nugget and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's great. And you, and you use it and you get better that particular day. It gets better. And a couple of weeks go by and then something goes out of whack and you're like, yeah. what, what, what is happened? going, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> and life is the same way. Yeah. Like you fix one thing and another thing pops up. I think the key is, is figuring out what works for you mm -hmm. in any of those situations, being open to new ideas, being open to communication, but figuring out what works for you and then recognizing when you are struggling and then figuring out how to pull yourself out of that. I think that is, but no, I, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't ever feel like I've got it figured out. But, well, all. but that's the point. Yeah. I'm, I think that's the, the real lesson here is that you're not going to figure it out. You're going to work towards it. You're going to improve. You're going to get better. And contrary to what we were told or taught or expected at the outset of this thing, when they started saying, okay, people are getting PTSD. This is a real thing. And TBI is a real thing. And then they pump you full of meds They say, well, this pill is going to fix it. And then it doesn't. And it comes with all these side effects and things like that. It, that's so discouraging and through this podcast and through talking to people like you i've learned like okay well it's not just one magic pill that's going to fix me and maybe i'm not ever going to be 100 percent fixed but i'm going to find a way to move through this and and it's going to be positive it's not going to be detrimental to my health and i'm going to do that by talking and getting outside or exploring my different options some of them don't work but that just means i'm one step closer to another thing that does work right right yeah i think all of the obstacles and challenges that we face Actually, I, well, I'll use a combat analogy. Your first combat deployment, you're you're clueless. You you you're reactionary. I mean, you do what you're trained to do, regardless of what level you're at. I think, um, yeah. even at the highest levels, you, you, I agree. You don't know until the first time you're in a gunfight, and then every subsequent time that you get in a gunfight or stuff happens, and you face adversity and overcome it. Those that opening up of the aperture, that visibility, that listening, that sensing, that feeling gets broader. And I used to call it spidey sense. By the time you'd done four or five combat deployments, the hairs on the back of your neck would stand up before shit went bad. Mm. And yep. some, some guys believe in that. Some guys don't. I swear you can feel it. Yeah. And it's almost, it's that you're just paying that much more attention. And I think that you, you have to carry that into the other aspects of your life later on to be healthy. So you got to open up that aperture. You got to not be afraid to look at yourself, to listen to other people, to recognize things when they happen and then see it, yeah. know it's there and then do something about it. Um, and it, like that, like I said, it, it still happens all the time. But that's I, why I asked you about the clarity because it comes out like as if I, I have a better sense and a better awareness now. But but, but you still don't catch it. Yeah. I, you know, at home, yeah. I, when I have depressive events, I don't know right away. It's, it's, you know, my wife will say something like, like, are you doing all right? Or what, whatever, whatever the conversation is, mm -hmm. uh, not, not to get into personal stuff, but she'll see it before I will. She's right next to me. You know, mm -hmm. your buddies will see it before you will. Your coworkers will see it before you are. And with them pointing that out, you can't be afraid of that. Mm -hmm. You gotta, you gotta take a second, think about it. And sometimes uh, like, I won't be great and she'll say something and I'll be like, no, no, whatever. And then the next day I'll go, Hey, you know what? You're right. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I am 
struggling right now and I've got some stuff going on. And then you maybe have a conversation, maybe that sparks a conversation, maybe it doesn't, but at least you've acknowledged it so that there's people that are your support network. Yeah. Um, and more importantly for yourself, you acknowledge it and then you just go, okay, well, what do I got to do? Yeah. So you spent how many years total within the army? Uh, 20. Okay. Yeah. And how many within SMU? Uh, nine. Okay. Yeah. I did, did 11 deployments. Um, and then I left the unit. Uh, again, I made another mistake. Um, it was at a point in my career where, and, and again, this is hindsight. I didn't know uh, all the things that were wrong with me. I didn't realize that I was dealing with post-traumatic stress. I didn't realize that I had TBI. Um, I didn't know what survivor's guilt was. Like I didn't know all this baggage I was carrying. I was divorced. I went through a pill phase post said neck surgery and got hooked on prescription meds post that. So where the only way I could feel right is if I was taking them. So I was on sleep pills. I was on pain pills. I was drinking. Um, and you change as a person. And mm -hmm. it was a stretch of my life in there again, where I almost took my life where I don't even remember stuff. Yeah. Like it's gone. Um, and then, you know, you, you fight through some of that, but you know, around about 2008, 2009, I was coming off my last couple deployments and, had various things happen during that stretch. I didn't know how messed up I was. Um, I didn't realize all the things I was doing to myself and people around me. Uh, and I made a poor decision on one of my, on my very last deployment. Um, and, you know, at the time, a myriad of things led up to me being asked about that event. And I owned it and said, yeah, this is what happened. Um, and I was told I had to leave for a year um, or two years or whatever it was. So I left the unit and uh, so back to the Q course story, I'll, I'll get lighter since that's a little heavy. But <laughs> so I went to the Q course, I graduated the Q course in 2005. Yeah. I went back to the unit after the Q course and then redeployed, just went back to work like normal. Yeah. When I graduated the Q course, they didn't give me my MOS. Why? And they didn't give me my tab because uh, General Parker, who was the SWIC commander at the time, changed the policy, said, I don't care if you're coming from an SMU or not. If you go through the Q course, you're not getting your tab or your MOS unless you go to language school. Well, I'd been gone for six months. I had a deployment coming up. My unit sergeant major was like, yeah, you're not going to language school. Like, right. come on back. We'll work that out later. Yeah. I said, okay. Well, I didn't care. Well, now fast forward to 2009, we'd never worked it out. So I'm still in 11 Bravo even though I'm a Q course graduate, I have a 1059 saying yeah. I graduated the Q course. Um, so I have to leave the unit and I was trying to figure out where I was going to go. The unit is super helpful when you leave. It's not like they just banish you to existence. Are it's, you an eight at this time? Yeah, I'm an E8. Okay. Um, so I ended up going, the only job that I could pick that had where I could still do things that I wanted to do was in the 82nd. It was 82nd Lurse. So I went to 82nd Lurse to be the first sergeant. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Those guys are lucky. Cause at, yeah, least, no at, least, at least it was a halo billet. Yeah. So I outranked the guy that was their existing first sergeant, but I didn't really want the job. Like I knew yeah. I was going to do something. So he was, whereas technically I should have relieved him. I was like, no man. I was like, you just, you stay in that billet. I'll call me like the ops sergeant or something and I'll help with training and jumps yeah, and sure. all that stuff. So it was kind of a cool year. Um, just training some of those young guys that were hungry. Uh, and they were assigned to 82nd 
combat aviation brigade at the time. So they pulled them out from the MI battalion they originally slotted under and they moved Lurse and turned them into a Pathfinder company and put them under the mm. combat aviation brigade. So here's, you know, this little yeah. platoon of basically 11 Bravos in an entire brigade of aviators. <laughs> it was weird. Wow. It, I bet it was. But I bet you had like a lot of leeway. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's going to tell yeah. you you're wrong? <laughs> yeah. So, but, but while, while I was there, I was, um, you know, I was miserable that I was there. Yeah. I, I lost my identity. I've talked about that on other podcasts. That was that was a catastrophic blow to my psyche. Um, to have everything that you thought you were and that defined you stripped away from you. Um, but while I was there, I was sitting around one night after some training with our XO and uh, the the other guy that was the first sergeant and the company commander, and we were having a beer or whatever, shooting the shit. And the XO's name was Maholland, John Maholland. I didn't, this is the second time in my life where this has occurred. It happened first with Paul Karen, where I didn't know who Paul was right. and I never put it together. And I had built this friendship with this guy with one side thinking I knew something and me not knowing whatever it was, sure. just yeah. oblivious, right? right? Maybe I'm self-absorbed. I don't know. <laughs> but so his name's John Mulholland. Why well, never put together that his dad is John Mulholland, who was then the USASOC commander. So General Mulholland. General Mahan. Right. So we're having a conversation and he finally, cause he's known me for a few months now, gets up the courage to go, Hey man, how the hell did you end up here? Like you were yeah. a unit operator for all these years did all these deployments, like what's going on? Like, tell me the story. So I tell him the story. I'm like, yeah, here's what happened. Yeah. I was 11 Bravo went to Q course in 05. They didn't give me the MOS because of the language identifier thing, blah, 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 blah. The part that I skipped over was I actually did, I did 30 days of Spanish immersion. I got, uh, a one, one in Spanish and I went over to the schoolhouse at SWIC. This is a year prior to that before I left the unit and I handed them my 1059 from the Q course, my SEER certificate and my language one, one. And they told me we can't make you an SF guy because you're an E8 and you can't go from being a regular army oh E8 to S right. And I go, you understand that I have like, <laughs> I have everything, eight years of rated NCO right. time yeah. that says equivalent to an SFODA yeah. on purpose. Right. Yeah. And they were like, yep, not going to do it. It was a personality thing. It was what it was. So I, now here I am, I've lost my identity. I'm in 82nd Lurse. I'm not an operator anymore. Like I'm, I'm back in, I just got a DUI mode. Like, <laughs> Conventional <laughs> army. All these years later. <laughs> I, I need a handout. I need somebody I, here. I'm yeah. a mess mentally. I'm yeah. a mess physically. Um, you know, I'm laughing cause I can now cause, yeah. I'm, cause I'm still here talking to you guys. But, yeah. but at the time it wasn't funny. So I'm, I'm telling the story and he's listening and he's like, man, you got to do something about that. Like, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do about it, man. I'm just, like gonna ride it out. They were getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan. I was not going to Afghanistan. I was in the middle of an ugly divorce. Like it just, I, I flat out told like the battalion commander, like I'm not deploying. Like I'll beat your rear D, dude. I'm not doing it. And they let me get away with it. Wow. <laughs> but but I was, I mean, I was kind of candid, and then I was like, I'm fucked up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he leaves that night. He goes home, calls his old man, says, Dad, you got to do something about this. Tells him my story. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know Big John, General Mahalo, right, right. from Adam, right? Yeah. And so the next day he comes into work and he goes, hey, my dad wants you to come see him. And right then I looked at his name tape and the light bulb went off. <laughs> <laughs> After knowing the guy for like six months. And I go, what? 
wait, wait, is your dad General Mulholland? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. Oh, and I go, man. no, I'm not going to see your dad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's like, what do you, what do you mean? He can fix this. And I go, I, this is not what NCOs do. I yeah. am not, I am not yeah. jumping over everybody in the chain of command and going to see the USASAC commanding general to, to complain about my problem. Right. Yeah. Right. And he's like, well, but, but he's a general. <laughs> and I said, look, I go, you tell your dad. This is literally what I said. <laughs> and afterwards I go, but uh, tell him nicely. I, yeah, right, right. <laughs> I said, you tell your dad to tell Perry Bear, who's the use of Sox Sergeant Major, to have Perry contact the unit and tell them to yeah, tell me to come see come, him. Yeah. And I go, and then if he wants to take me in to see General Mahal, that's fine. But at least I'm not like skipping right. everybody Oof. i was like i just wouldn't feel right about it so he laughs and says okay so he calls his dad his dad does that okay literally so perry bear calls me up there to see him and then we go in to see big john and it was like a 10 second conversation he was like you know hey my boy speaks really highly of you he gave me the background he's like i don't need to hear anymore perry fix it fix it now get him his 18 series and pull this guy back into the fold somewhere in the use of sock bubble work it out damn so that was this how'd you feel like walking out of there i mean like did you feel like maybe a sense of it's okay i'm back it was a little it was a little win in a time of my life when i was really really low yeah and and people didn't know i mean like work-wise like i could fake it good like when we were working and training it was like always i could shove the box back in the corner and i could do that stuff so you know, I'm sure none of those kids knew it, but they didn't see me away from work. Mm-hmm. They didn't see how self-destructive I was and how literally messed up my life was. Um, so, yeah, he did. So they called down. They fixed it. I went over to Swick like two days later, and they handed me my knife that they never gave me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they, wow. And they handed me my tab orders and my MOS orders. And Perry said, when you get all that, Sergeant Major Bear said, when you get all that squared away, call me and we'll figure out what we're going to do with you. And so I called him and he said, uh, hey, I got a new task force. I'm standing up in Pakistan. I'd like you to go head that up and be like the NCOIC. And he's like, you have way more experience than anybody to plug in that position. And I, again, I had because I, I knew I was not well. I said, I can't I can't do it. And I can't, looking back on it, I'm like, I can't believe these people did all this stuff for me and yeah, I yeah. told them no. Yeah, over and over, yeah. But at the same time, I don't know that I'd be here. Like, I don't, I don't know. I was so reckless at the time. I don't know that I would have survived. Yeah. Um, whether I'd done it myself or whether I'd gotten myself in a situation where something bad happened. But I told him I couldn't do it. And he goes, all right, well, you got 24 hours to find a job. And I'm like, okay. And he didn't mean it bad. He, no, meant, no, he yeah. meant like, I know you know people. Start calling around yeah. and yeah. tell me where you're going to go. Yeah. And so I did. So in a panic, I started calling people and I called a buddy of mine, Randy Williams was, uh, the, the J eight at JSOC. So doing equipping stuff. And I called Randy and I said, you got something for me? And he goes, I don't, he goes, but USASOC does. And he's like, call a guy named Pete Gould. He said, call Pete at USASOC G eight. So I called Pete and Randy had already called him and Pete's like, love to have you. He's like, you can come over and take over target engagement for you right now. And he said in that time, taking a step back from uh, an active combat role and deploying and stuff like that, you were able to find some healing and kind of work I, your way back to. I was, yeah. A lot, a lot of self-reflection. Um, I also, I got to meet a lot of new guys. I got to meet guys from all over the, you know, SF command world. So from different groups, different experiences, um, some really good dudes. I learned that, you know, everybody's got a story and, yeah. and you gotta, you gotta ask them and get to know it, to hear it. Um, and that you can learn from all those dudes. Like, uh, 
I, I don't know, I guess the number of years I thought I was special and nothing else was going on, but I quickly learned then that, oh yeah, all kinds of stuff was going on that you didn't know about on the, on the SF side. Um, so that was awesome. Um, and then I enjoyed the equipment piece. I enjoyed identifying problems, um, capability gaps within the force or, or being brought those and then going out and finding solutions or, or working with companies to help build and develop solutions. Um, and that was sort of a great uh, introduction to industry. Um, and, you know, that was kind of when the light bulb started going off of yeah. I can see myself doing some other things away from the military that I don't just have to be this former SMU guy or this former Green Beret, even though I never served in an <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um But that I could do some other things um, and that I could use the, the, the skills and experiences that I had had uh, acquired over the years to feed into that next career. Um, so yeah, I did four years. Uh, the first couple of years, I was the soldier systems commodity lead as we grew the shop. And then I took over as a deputy chief and then we didn't have any O's, believe it or not. <laughs> we had like 23 guys. And it was me and a W4 guy. That named, sounds wonderful. Guy named Mike McCavich. It was amazing. Mm. Um, reader was the commanding general of SF command at the time. And reader was a, a, a pro, uh, a pro guy on the ground. Um, commanding general, yeah. uh, and his uh, his chief of staff at the time was a guy named um, Matt Harris, and both those guys were were Green Berets, Green Berets. Like they were yeah. good dudes. They weren't what you would call us. This is the guy that just um, Brennan took over. Did you know Brennan? Brennan did. Who, yeah. who ironically, Brennan was my first troop commander. Yeah. in the SMU. Okay, and I, uh, I was going to ask you about that. I didn't know. Yeah, I just I actually I just saw Bam Bam as we called him, but I just yeah. saw General Brennan at a at a well, unfortunately, at a funeral. Yeah, um, up in D.C. a few weeks back, but it was good to catch up with him. Yeah, he was just down in seventh grade. Now the guy that you're talking about, um, who Major General Brennan replaced, I watched a lot of videos that um, that First Special Forces Command put out on him giving leadership discussions to his leadership team and all of that. And wow, that guy! It, I mean, I, I reached out to First uh, Special Forces Command and said, "Hey, can can we get him on the podcast?" Because yeah, I don't. I don't know if he would do it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I saw him at the funeral, he'd been. Oh, not Major General Brennan. Oh. I was talking about the the general before. Oh, Reader. Yeah. Oh, Reader would probably come. Yeah. On. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's in private sector now, and yeah. I, it, so so to round it out though, yeah. I, great experience. I had great leaders there. Um, I had great coworkers. I had guys that allowed me and helped me heal and recover. Um, and I think that experience. Um, opened up a lot of doors for me. It opened up a lot of space in my mind to look at different things. Mm -hmm. um, and then it introduced me to what I do now. And so uh, the same guy, Pete Gould, that, that pulled me into the USASOC G8 before I ended up down at SF Command um, and got me into that that equipment development world, um, he came in the office one day and he said, hey, you need to run out to, to Range 37. And there was a the sniper comp was going on and vendors used to set up outside the sniper comp when it's at Bragg every year. And I said, why? And he said, you know, I was going to go out this afternoon. He goes, no, you need to go meet this guy, Jason Beck, that owns this company called Tier Tactical. He's like, yeah, I used to own a company called Diamondback Tactical. You know, he sold that a number of years ago, had a two-year non-compete. He started yeah. Tier. And I said, well, is this another kick guy? Why do I need to go meet him? And I, <clears throat> he said, because you guys are similar. And he said, I think you'll like him and you'll have a lot in common. So I'd like you to go see some of the stuff that he's doing. So I said, yeah. okay. Well, I, a, a good friend of mine and teammate, Brad Thomas, um, Brad had retired we were in a Sabre squadron together. It was a guy that I look up to, you know, Brad was in Somalia in 93 as a, as a ranger and then ended up in the unit. And it, anyway, he was, 
he was like a big brother to me. And uh, Brett, when Brad had retired, he had gone to work for another kit company. Um, and it, it, to me, it was like the it was like the model that if you were going to do it, this is how you do it. You go, you transition to civilian world, you continue to cut, touch the community, you use those abilities to help the community in any way that you can. And he's done that year after year after year, um, probably more so than most guys I know. He's just done it quietly. Mm -hmm. And I always thought like, that's the way to do it. But I didn't want to be a one-off. I didn't want to do the same thing that somebody else did. So I was looking around, but anyway, I, I go out to the range and I meet Jason and we did. I mean, I've told jokes about it in the past. Like I was probably really dismissive and he thought that I didn't like him because I talked to thousands of companies at that point and you always get their pitch in like 30 yeah. seconds. And so I was always very business. Um, but he was so motivated. Like he was so inspiring, like just wanting to do new stuff and hungry. And it really felt like it wasn't about money. It was about the guys and, and what he was building and solving problems for basically for soft dudes mm -hmm. um, and like high end law enforcement. And so we built and kind of cultivated a relationship from there. And I was just thinking about it the other day. Um, so, you know, Jason asked me to come on. We went through a little evolution before I retired of what I was going to do. But ultimately, it culminated with him asking me to come on to be his number two, to be his chief operating officer. Tremendous opportunity. I was really fortunate. Again, I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why a guy, a guy that's made as many mistakes as I have just kept, you know, the right things kept happening. Maybe it's because I just... Every time I lost, I tried to figure out how to be a winner again. Right, but right. but whatever it was, um, we hit it off, and he asked me to, to come out and work for him. So I retired, and I did that. And then, you know, I think about it a lot, about what were the things that brought me here? Why why do I enjoy it? Um, you know, uh, for obvious reasons, I still get to touch the community, interact with it. That's great. Two, I like solving guys' problems. There, there's nothing better than, because as end users before, before for us, our kids yeah. sucked, man. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. things have gotten better as the years go. The stuff we build now, I wish we had back then. Mm -hmm. But I love when they come to you or you you build a solution for them and they, they're like, man, this is awesome. And yet for every one of those, there's 10 guys that go, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> That's just how that world works. Yeah. Um, but, but I like being in the touch community. I like being able to solve their problems. But then kind of the other epiphany I had recently was, you know, Jason's an, um, an entrepreneur. He's a self-made guy. Um, this is now his second company that he's built from the ground up, literally from nothing to successful. He was um, a Marine for a few years. Um, he ended up, he was involved in Marine Corps Combatives program. That's what got him into it. And then he ended up joining the Gracie family and touring all over the world, teaching Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a bunch of years. And that was before he started doing a training company and then started Diamondback and then built Diamondback into this big thing, sold it, and then got back into the game kind of with a new focus of this is what I want to do. I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to take on investors. So he's a privately held company, an industry that is predominantly owned by investment firms and companies. It's impersonal, right? Mm -hmm. It's just about money. And Tier's like the one company out there that's still doing it for personal reasons. Like we're still doing it because it's about the guy. And the other thing is when you have a personality like that that's been through those trials, sure, they're eccentric and he and I can fight like cats and dogs or we can love each other like brothers. Like we have our ups and downs. But what I realized, particularly in the last year, um, mainly in, in my own head because I go through ups and downs, like I said, and sometimes... I think it's for other reasons and really it's internally, but I was thinking about it all. He's the guy that does what I got to do in the unit. When I was in the unit, it would be like, Hey, we have to go do this thing. Well, we've never done that. Okay. Does anybody know how to do it? No. Well, and somebody would go, well, then how are we going to do that? And an organization like that, 
a bunch of guys will go, I don't know, we'll figure it out. And somebody will go, well, you can't do that. Well, why can't we do that? You know, no one's ever asked that question. <laughs> I love that about that place. Like, screw you. Yes, we can do it. You yeah. know why? Because we're smart, we're motivated, and we're just not going to take no for an answer. Yeah. Jason's that guy in, in entrepreneurial form. I've never met anybody that you can go, <laughs> well, you can't do that. And he's, he will do it. He will, he will find a way to get it done. And just, I'm not going to go on and belabor it, but you know, like in, in the five years that I've been with tier, I, I retired in 2015, went to work for him. And again, we're a body armor and kit company. So we do kits, clothes, backpacks and, and armor. Um, last year, really the last year the the tax cuts, and I'm definitely not going to get political, but the tax cuts impacted us, particularly as a small business and a privately held small business. Um, they freed up a lot of resources. So they mm -hmm. enabled us to hire some more employees. We had a really successful year and it allowed Jason to make a decision to invest back in the company and continue to grow the business. You know, he could have taken that and walked away. He could have done whatever he wanted with it, but he chose to put it back in the business and, and to get better at what we do for the people that we serve. And he invested a bunch of money back in the company and we're building an entire building to support hard armor development. And again, this is the stuff that I love. We went, we sat around and we had some decisions to make and I'm involved in all of those. Doesn't mean he always listens to me, but at least I have some input. And we said, what do we want to do here? Or do we want to take the next leap and truly do hard armor and shield development and, and be that total solution provider? We'd always done soft armor and stuff like that. <clears throat> or, or do we want to slow it down? And he said, absolutely not, man, we're, we're doing it. And we're like, well, where, how can, what, where can we make the biggest change? And we had a conversation with our sales team and us and, you know, the guys that work for us are all retired dudes. <laughs> They're all like military and law enforcement retirees. Great team. And we had a conversation about shields and it was, why does every police vehicle in the United States not have at a minimum a 3A, a pistol rated ballistic shield in their trunk? Yeah. It's a defensive item. It's not offensive. We're worried about cops looking too tactical and being too, there's, you guys get it. There's all this drama out there. So why not provide them with a resource that can protect them? So instead of walking up to a vehicle with a hand on their gun in a high-risk scenario, they have a small, lightweight ballistic shield between them and the vehicle they're approaching. It diffuses the situation. It allows them yeah. to communicate without either person feeling threatened. Like, there's so many things. Why don't we do that? Well, we don't do it because that stuff has sucked for a bunch of years. Nobody yeah. likes them. They've been too heavy. Mm -hmm. Companies just sort of do status quo on what's needed. Well, Jason went... <clears throat> well, what hasn't been done? Well, you can only press ballistics to a certain level right. because the presses are ginormous and they cost millions of dollars. And so nobody ever takes that leap because they're never really asked to. Well, Jason's the kind of guy that went, well, just because nobody ever asked doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And he reinvested that money, built a building, and built the two largest presses in North America. Wow. And starting in January, we're going to put those things into, into operation and we're going to push the industry. We're going to make everybody get better literally next year. Like they have no choice. Um, and we're going to see how far we can take ballistic science, see how light, see how high performing and how thin we can get. But the goal is to build things that are effective, that protect military and law enforcement, that change the game, that do something yeah. different. So just because they didn't ask for it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Sometimes they don't know what to ask until you show them what the capability is. And we're developing the capability. And I think that's really cool. That's like, a good leader, too. I yeah, mean, really you cool. don't. Yeah. It, you don't find those types of leaders that just don't understand the word can't and says, no, that's not in the vocabulary. It's more about what are the risks? What are the obstacles in our way? What are the costs? Let's measure all that and put it on the table and we can decide whether we want to do it right now 
Yeah. You know, because it's always capable. We're always capable of doing it. Yeah. It's, well, and so to tie it back, yeah. like just because you haven't done something doesn't mean you can't do it better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. You just got to try harder. Yeah. You got to work at it harder. You got to want it. And that was a, a key part of an organization that I spent a good portion of my adult life in and, and loved. And it was a part of who I am today. Uh, like we said, doesn't define yeah. me, but those experiences are part of who I am. And now I get to work for a company that takes that same mindset and what we do now. So while the two are completely different and I'm on opposite sides of the spectrum, I still get a lot of that. I get mm-hmm. a lot of that release of, of, Hey, we've never done this. I don't care. Let's do it. Not only yeah. let's do it, but let's do it better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And we're going to invest the time and energy to get that done. However we have to. When was it that you started getting into hiking and all that? Cause it was around the same time frame, right? It was. Yeah. So two things happened. Um, one in my transition period, one was finding the right place to go work and the, and the right place to be a part of a team and to build a team around me. The second one was, was discovering something that I'd kind of forgotten and that's being out in the outdoors. Um, my wife and I, we weren't married in 2015, but we were living together. Um, we, uh, we got married a year later, but she asked me before I retired if there was anything I wanted to do before I went back to work. You know, like guys in the military, we always say, that's my first retirement. Yes. <laughs> Cause, cause, yeah. Yeah. It's not enough to live off of, you know, you're right. going, you're going on to career number two. Yeah. And, uh, I always said career number two was for me that, you know, career number one was for uncle Sam and mm-hmm. country. Um, which isn't really true because I'm still doing stuff for Uncle Sam. It makes you feel good to say it's it every now and then. Though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but um, but she said, "What you know? What do you want to do? Do you want to take a little break?" And I said, "You know, like a vacation or whatever." And I had always wanted to do a long through hike, like the Appalachian Trail or something. So, long story short, we ended up settling on the John Muir Trail. So we spent three weeks, and she did it with me. Um, we had, I had gotten her into backpacking in the like year or two leading up to that, which she had never done a lot of, and she fell in love with it, which was amazing. Um, we went out and hiked John Muir and leading up to that point, I've talked about another podcast, but I had sleep, I had a severe sleep disorder, um, for five or six years. Um, wasn't insomnia. Not uncommon. Yeah. 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 I mean, normal stuff. Again, yeah. that was, I was still in the healing process, although I had gotten a lot better. I, I had a lot of things still wrong. Right. But I went and hiked John Muir and literally it, it reset, you know, your circadian rhythm or whatever. So you would, we walk all day on the trail and it'd be painful yeah. and it'd suck and you'd be exhausted and the sun would go down and you'd go to sleep because you don't have anything else to do. Yeah. And then the sun would come up and you would get up. So you'd get like 12 hours of sleep. Um, and after a couple of days of that, it completely reset. So I spent three weeks out in the wilderness walking from, you know, Yosemite National Park and we ended up summoning Mount Whitney at the bottom um, 21 days later. And I lost like 26 pounds or 27 pounds. So I was like wow. fit. We went to Mexico right yeah. after that. And like it's on the beach. Like <laughs> it didn't last. I put it back on. Yeah. <laughs> I went to dad bod back. But, but, um, but what it did for me mentally was a, a, a bunch of things. Yeah. It, it allowed me to access those boxes in my head that I didn't know how to like open up safely <laughs> in any other circumstance. So on a hike, because you, you may spend an hour or two chit-chatting back and forth as you move. As the suck continues and it gets worse, um, you start going internal, like doing a long run, like training for a marathon. You get in your head and you, and you go through all, you solve the world's problems in your own brain. And you're not even saying it out loud. So it gave me a safe, healthy space to access some of those things and to think about them and then to discuss them with someone that I love and trust um, and work through some of those. Um, two, it, it put me back in the outdoors. You know, uh, I've said this before, but... 
and it was said to me by someone and I've never let it go, you appreciate being in the outdoors with all of your senses. When you're on a long hike or a climb or whatever, you feel the ground on your feet with every step that you take. You feel the pack on your back. You smell the flowers and trees and bushes. You hear the animals and water and wind. You see the visual sights. It is a it is an overwhelming sensory experience if you allow yourself to experience it. And that for me was incredible. And I and I realized how much I missed that and how important that was to me. And then the third piece of it was <clears throat> long distance hiking or climbing or expeditions or anything like that is very much akin to planning and executing a military operation. You you have to lay out your route. You have to choose the correct route. You have to figure out how much time it takes you. You have to figure out logistical support. You have to figure out what you're going to do to get over a particular obstacle. You have to figure out what you're going to do in inclement weather or if someone gets hurt. You have to solve all these things, put together a plan, and then execute that plan, and then you have to deal with contingencies along the way. And and they always come up. Some days you just don't have it, and it sucks. And you got to go, nope, we're going to set up camp here instead of what we planned or whatever that is. But the combination of planning, executing, the pain and suffering, and then the completion and sense of accomplishment that comes from doing a through hike or a big climb was so much like a successful combat operation that it was cathartic, that it, it released something in my brain that made me feel better um, to the point where now, like when, as I start to feel bad or I have depressive events or whatever, or I get chippy at work or, I mean, people know it in me now. And, and Jason will say, hey, man, go take a hike. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and, and, you know, you get in the outdoors, and, and, and I do. I feel better. I come back refreshed. I feel healthy. Um, my wife and I have done, at a minimum, a, a 10-day or two-week through hike a year. We yeah. do tons of... You got big plans, too. Yeah. N- next one. So I, <laughs> I started her... Um, like I said, when we met, she had never hiked. Uh, the joke is I said she's never pooped in the woods because <laughs> that's a milestone, right? <laughs> yep. And, uh, and Or slept in a tent or any of that stuff. So, But she's phenomenal. She's a stud. She she doesn't get it. But, like, we hiked John Muir with, you know, she had 40 pounds on her back. You know, try walking wow. 10 miles a day with 40 pounds on your back in some of the most difficult terrain you've ever walked. She did that. I go, I know SF dudes that can't do that yeah. right now. And so she's never really appreciated that, but, yeah. she, but she's a beast. And uh, she pushes me. So, yeah, we do long hikes every year. I've built her progressively to kind of bigger and bigger stuff. Um, and I've got her into some alpine mountaineering stuff now, um, which I really enjoy. So last January we did uh, Orizaba, which is the s- tallest volcano in North America. It's in Mexico. Um, it's like 18,000 and change. So we summited Orizaba. Wow. This year we decided in January um, we're going to go down to Ecuador and do like five summits in Ecuador and finish on Cotopaxi, which is like 19 and change. And then start next summer, um, and this, I don't know if I should even say it out loud because I don't want people to freak out. I'm going to do this over a long period of time. But I, you know, my wife and I had a conversation and I said, you know, I've always had a goal of doing the seven summits. Um, So the tallest peak on each of the continents, Um, obviously Everest being the culminating event. Mm, Right. But I've always had a goal of that, and it was kind of a pipe dream for a lot of years, but I really enjoy that stuff and the fact that I have a person next to me that likes that stuff too, and I know is capable, even if she's terrified. Um, <laughs> each time she does something new, uh, she takes that next step, and her comfort level gets a little better. Yeah. And so I came home the other day, and I said, hey, I, I don't want to be 50, 60 years old and decide now I want to try and do the seven summits and not be physically able. And I don't know. You know, I've got a lot of ailments and injuries over the years, and 
who knows with the head stuff, like, who, yeah. who knows, right? Yeah. I'm not being morbid. I'm just, no, no, no. But I said, if I don't start now, um, I just don't want to lose that opportunity. I go, I may never get there. It may take me 10 years to do it, but I want to start. And I said, and I think we could do, she's like, well, I don't want to do Mount Everest. I was like, I'm not saying you have to do all of them. <laughs> Yet. Yet. <laughs> I go, if we get to that point and you feel like it, yeah, cool. And I said, but, but you right now can do five of the seven. Like right now you could do that. Yeah. And so she thought about it for a while and, and understood why I was saying it. And so she agreed. Whoa. Um, so this summer we're going to do, so after Cotopax in January, this summer we're going to go do um, Mount Elbrus, which is the highest peak in Europe. Most people think it's the Matterhorn or one of those, yeah. but it's actually Elbrus in the Caucasus uh, on the western side of Russia. Um, so we'll do Elbrus uh, and then probably Kilimanjaro after that as kind of a little easier one. And then hopefully Aconcagua in 2022. Um, and then maybe Denali immediately after Aconcagua. Um, so that's four. I'm not worried about Australia. I'm talking about the original seven summit list, not yeah. the one in Indonesia, because we're not doing that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we'll fit Australia in because it's an easy walkable one. Um, and then uh, what am I missing? Kelly Elbrus. Well, you're missing Everest. But so what's the one in the middle? Uh, Vincent, Antarctica. Um, okay which I almost did as a team trip a bunch of years ago and it got canceled because, you know, war. But <laughs> it's a good video. <clears throat> yeah. So if you get the five... If, right, if, if, we get, if, we get, if, if we get five done, which I think she can do, Vincent in Antarctica will take me a number of years to convince her to do because she hates being cold. Um, and, then, and then Everest. Uh, but she would do the trek to base camp with me at a minimum. Um, so again, I don't know if I'll ever get there. Yeah. But uh, I'm one of those guys where I've, I've always liked looking at what the next thing was and having something out there to be working towards. Yeah. And we love being in the outdoors so much together. We love the long distance hiking thing, which we will continue to do. But while I still have a shot at it, I... Why not? Why not? Yeah. Because uh, then you never want to live the life of regret of, why didn't I? Yeah. And, yeah. Maybe, and, and, you know, if I make the decision to not do it, yeah. so be it. Yeah. But at yeah. least I didn't lose the ability to make that decision. But you found this to be so cathartic that I think you're also looking at it as an opportunity in some fashion that you've not figured out yet to maybe help other people who are in the same situation. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, and I've said this in the past. I, I, we want, we collectively, my wife and I talk about it a lot. We want to do something in the future that helps other people discover what we found. It's not just me. Like, you know, she doesn't, all those things haven't happened to her, but that doesn't mean anything. Like yeah. you, you don't have to be a, a veteran or a, a, a war veteran or whatever. You could be a first responder. You could be a school teacher. You'd be somebody who had a car accident and lost, you know, family members. Pretty much anybody suffering from post-traumatic stress from any event or, or traumatic brain injury from any event or depression or any of those things, I think personally can benefit from doing things in the, in the outdoor space. I think it's not just some weird anomaly that it helped me the way that it did. I mean, I'm not on any medication. I know I have all these things wrong with me. <clears throat> and like I said, I still struggle, but I'm for all intents and purposes, healthy from solely from routine, which is like getting up, you know, every day and doing certain things eating healthy, working out, spending time in the outdoors and being open and talking about things when they bother me like that. 
kind of mix of stuff. That's not medication. That's not, it's, it's holistic. It's if, if it can help me, it can help anybody. And I want to help people find that. And I don't know what that looks like yet. We don't know what that looks like yet, but we're definitely trying to figure that out and, and are headed down that path eventually. You so. do realize that people are going to listen to these podcast episodes and before too long, by the time you get to maybe the second summit, you're going to be like Forrest Gump and look around. There's about 30 people behind yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's cool though. Like, like uh, again, I, I have a great job. Yeah. Like I, I, I can, I think I work for one of the best kit companies in the world. Yeah. Um, and we have a great team and I absolutely love it and we're crushing it year after year. And I love it. So, but I still need to be away. Mm-hmm. And I said this to Jason the other day. We were just talking, it was just in passing. He popped in my office and sat down and we were talking about something. And somehow I went, hey man, I think, I think I'm going to try and do the seven summits. And he was like, what? <laughs> and I explained what it was. And you know what he said? He didn't even skip a beat. I'm his chief operating officer. And he looked at me and he went, I think that's freaking awesome. That's what he said. And I you know, again, like I said, we have our frustrations, right? We're a growing business and 300 some odd people. So it has its challenges and, and you forget just like anything else. But like in that moment, I was reminded like, I'm lucky. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and I, I'm not just lucky because I'm surrounded by good people, but I'm lucky because I had the personal courage to own who I am, to expose myself to people that I care about. And then like allow them or help them to understand who I am and where I am. And I think that's why. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's why uh, I'm where I am today. So, yeah, feels good. Now, sounds like you're home as close as what it can be from what you had hoped it to be after retirement, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I'm more comfortable traveling, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that could be part of his home as well. Yeah. So I, before I let you go, I've got to ask you, why did you go back to the unit? Ah, uh, good question. Uh, a myriad of reasons. Um, so when I left, again, that was culture shock. Uh, you know, when you're told you have to leave something that to that point in your life, you thought was everything. It was all you ever wanted to be. It was all you were. And you didn't know how you were going to go on after that. Um, the stretch of time after that, the couple years after that were horrific. I got to really low points, uh, as I've talked about before. Um, I battled with prescription drug addiction, heavy alcohol use, near suicide, losing more friends. Like, it just was bad. And about the time that my two years was up, I was st- I was on. The- I had made the turn. I was starting to recover. Um, I was working at SF Command, and I was doing something new. Um, I think it was a combination of things, but I think for the most part, I felt like that part of me was behind me, that whether I could or couldn't go back, whether they would take me back, there was nothing preventing me from doing it, but I I just felt like if I went backwards, it was going to do more harm than good. I felt like it wasn't my path, that my time had passed, that I was fortunate and lucky that I did 11 combat deployments with the greatest unit on the planet Earth. And I came out with all my fingers and toes and limbs, and I'm still here. Um, that I, I didn't want to roll those dice again. Um, and it took a minute <laughs> because part of that feels like uh, you're scared. Yeah. And and maybe maybe it was a little fear in there, and that's cool. Uh, I, I certainly, jokingly, I say the reason I wear my heart on my sleeve and I don't care is I, I 
if anything, I feel like I earned my man card somewhere in there. Yeah. Oh, you <laughs> definitely yeah. do. I don't, I don't have anything to prove. So, and then no one expects that of me. So why am I putting that on myself? Yeah. And then once mentally I kind of got over that hurdle, then life became about what's next, not about what I used to do or what I did. It became about what am I going to do next? And I think that was part of the healing process. So I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah. And, and during that time frame, I mean, you think about what all you accomplished, um, while you were there as part of the unit and, you know, there will be a lot of it that will never be told. But your photo is in the spine in the compound. I think. <laughs> it used to Perhaps, be. Yeah, still. So, I mean, the fact if that. If I keep doing podcasts, it might take <laughs> Maybe <down>. not. <laughs> it'll just be the frame. Yeah. Or it'll be one of those uh, pictures that you see when you buy the frame. You know, that's yeah. got the family or, you know, somebody on there. But, yeah, anyway, you, I mean, your photo's there for a particular mission, as a matter of fact, that. Um, maybe you can quickly share. Uh, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> the latter part of my career in the unit, I transitioned into a different role in the building. Um, again, you don't always want to do what they tell you to do in the service. Uh, and then after the fact, you realize that it was pretty cool that they made you do that. Yeah. Um, so it was another example of right place, right time for me. And I ended up on a rotation at Horn of Africa, <clears throat> and we were... Basically, for the first time, we were targeting HPTs outside of the Middle East. So we weren't in Afghanistan or Iraq or Pakistan. Um, it was the first time we had really stepped out of the box. Uh, it was significant because I was the first unit guy, the first Army SMU dude back in um, Somalia in particular uh, since Mogadishu in 93, since the Black Hawk Down incident. Um, it was significant to my organization because we were involved in that. And I was originally a C-Squadron guy and C-Squadron was the squadron that was in Somalia that day. Um, and then 3rd Ranger Battalion, which I was also in, and then there's a lot of guys from 3rd Bat that ended up in C Squadron, weirdly. Yeah. So it meant a lot to a lot of people, and I understood the significance of that. So two of us deployed over there to kind of work that mission set, and it was a, it was a joint uh, effort. So there was two guys from each color of the rainbow. We called it the Rainbow Coalition. I've said that before. <laughs> which I think is cool. So, you know, the, the, the different tiers all have a color. Um, designator and so we had two guys from green two guys from blue two guys from red uh, two guys from white etc and so yeah I, I ended up again right place right time we were chasing um, two HBTs Harun Vizul and Saleh Nabhan which were the guys responsible for the embassy bombings in, in uh, Nairobi Kenya and, and Dar es Salaam Tanzania in 1998 and they were still on the wanted list and this is now 2007 uh, and we were tracking them. We had limited assets, you know, so it was difficult. It wasn't like targeting in Iraq was at that point where we had a lot of tech on our side um, because everything was still dedicated to Iraq and Afghanistan. So we had limited stuff, uh, but we did have some SIGINT and, and uh, were able to track these guys down, or at least we thought, and then made some calls and a decision was made to kind of go after them. They um, were on a boat and at the time there was basically the foreign fighter network in the middle east so aq was um recruiting guys in the middle east they were shipping them down through yemen putting them on a boat sending them over to somalia because it was a safe place to train them where they wouldn't get targeted because we weren't doing anything in somalia and weren't supposed to be there and they were training them in training camps in southern somalia and teach them how to make bombs and you know kill americans basically and then they were putting them on a boat and shipping them back to the middle east to go get in the fight and as we saw the foreign fighter network evolve in Iraq, anybody that was there will tell you, it got yeah. way diverse. There were dudes from all over. Um, so this was very much a part of that. Um, so they, uh, their ship, uh, High Sea State, ended up damaging their ship and ended up forcing them aground um, in northern Somalia, right on the tip of the Horn of Africa. 
And even though we didn't have much, we knew it was an opportunity we couldn't pass up. So yeah. you were in the bird in flight somewhere, you know, right? Yeah. Th this we was were, yeah, we were, we were flying from um, Djibouti to Basaso, Somalia. So I was doing basically a UW mission, a Green Beret mission. We were yeah. working with Indige to help facilitate and use them as an action arm to roll up HVTs in Somalia and disrupt this network. And this was a little bigger than that. This was, you know, 18 to 25 guys on a boat that were all bad dudes that had just oh. come out of the training camp, at least so we thought. And two of them potentially were HVTs we've been tracking for a decade. And, uh, yeah, so we, we made a decision. We made a call. Oh, they, they crash landed. We're going to go at least try to roll them up in this town. Um, so through a series of planes, trains, and automobiles, we ended up <laughs> we ended up in the desert, and it was me and a, and a Navy SEAL and an Air Force combat controller uh, and about 12 um, indige Somalis that were, for the most part, friendly to us. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, it ended up being a waiting game. Um, we ended up getting called out by the guy that I'll call the 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 G chief, the guerrilla commander. So the head guy in charge of the, the host nation folks that we were using the Somalis. And he was the only guy that spoke English. And he basically said, if you guys don't go kill these guys, we're going to go without you. And so it was a funny moment between the three of us. And I, I laughed with the Navy SEAL and the CCT guy and said, this is the most Q course thing I've ever heard of in my life. Like yeah. the G commander just said, Hey, <laughs> you guys are pussies, <laughs> you know, and I'm trying yeah. to be this smart, like American, like, all we have to do is wait these guys out. Like right. 110 degrees. They have nothing. Right. Yeah. We have stuff. They're going to run out. Eventually they're going to quit. Uh, but they didn't. And, uh, so yeah, he, uh, decided he wanted to go over the mountains. So we made a hasty plan, didn't move into contact. Um, ended up in a gunfight with he, well, he, well the, the interesting part of this story is that your CCT you couldn't get any air support right no you didn't have any air support yeah uh, yeah so I'm uh, sorry I'm I'm breezing through <laughs> it because I know we're short on time <laughs> but yeah the cool thing about it was we had we had an Air Force combat controller and yeah. we had we had a Navy SEAL so the what we did have was we had um, a dirt airfield that was near us um, so we went and surveyed the airfield prior to doing this movement to contact uh, and that was the Air Force guy's idea um, so that we could bring fixed wing in if we had casualties or something like that because they were like five hours away. So we at least had to have a place. And the only thing we were getting was a fixed wing aircraft out of Djibouti. And uh, and then, you know, the Navy guy was like, hey, we got this, these ships off the coast running anti-piracy operations. Can we call one of those? Like he said to the CCT yeah. guy, who's your like quasi RTO? It's like, <laughs> can we call one of them? And Brady's like, yeah, yeah. we can call them in the blind. So we did. So we called a naval ship doing counter-piracy operations from That's mainland Somalia. <laughs> and we said, hey, we want to plan target reference points. And they were like, what? Who are you? Where are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> and so there was like this exchange. And, you know, our stuff was reporting back to SecDef, so we had authorization to do whatever we wanted. And this was like a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get, you know, probably the number two and three most wanted men on the face of the earth behind, like, bin Laden at that yeah. point or AMZ, I guess then. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> so yeah, so we called the, dest the destroyer and did some targets reference, reference points for their naval gunfire, not knowing, like we didn't right. know, like me, you, you never expect to do that. No one called naval gunfire yeah. since like Vietnam or something. And yeah, but I love how you also said that, um, you could hear in the background, the people go, yeah, oh, 
Oh, they were either. so jacked up. Yeah. You know, you're just turning holes in the ocean. Right. And all of a sudden, some commandos call you and they're like, hey, you guys want to shoot some guns? <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank God they were there. Thank God, you know, we did have the, the Rainbow Coalition and different perspectives. And so, so yeah, then it came down to me and I was like, well, I guess we just do a movement contact. We had these two Somali gun teams. Yeah. I say that really loosely. <laughs> we had guys with belt fed weapons. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we did movement contact, ended up in a gunfight. Um, we sustained a bunch of casualties. Uh, basically everything that we set up, we executed. So all that foresight, all that contingency wow. planning, um, all the collective thought of the three of us saved our ass and and helped the day and that's why it was successful but um yeah so in the middle of the engagement we took a, a bunch of casualties um our somalis were all wounded uh, amazingly we weren't because uh, i was in basically plates and a chest rack i didn't even have a helmet on in the gunfight yeah. and uh, we didn't have any frags so like there was we just said no we had no upper hand the only thing yeah. we had was we had elevation we were on an elevated piece of terrain on the ridge so as they fought up towards us we were in a good position to deal with them and we did and um and you did call in the naval gunfire we did call in naval gunfire yeah we got we had enough wounded we got to a point where it was sort of a stalemate the the rest of the guys remaining that were alive were in defilade and they were shooting belt yeah. fed up at it like there was we weren't going over that hill yeah it just didn't yeah. make sense and we had to deal with all the wounded so so yeah, so Brady was like, the CCT guys was like, hey, let's call in those guns, man. And you know, this, I mean, as much as you can laugh in a yeah. situation like that, we laughed. And, yeah. Yeah. and so we pulled the guys back off the hill, back to our little patrol base and hammered the hell out of that valley with naval gunfire and ended up going back up the next day and, you know, SSE and all the bodies and, you know, seeing what was on them. And there were of all the guys that we killed, there were guys from, I think, seven different countries. Wow. Um, two guys, British passport holders that were foreign fighters that were part of the network. And uh, the one guy, the Yemeni dude, was the chief dude for running. He was the chief guy shuttling folks from the Middle East to Somalia and back. So he was the dude responsible for the transportation of all those foreign fighters. And... Um, he was killed in engagement. And we didn't know this till much time later, but it shut down that whole East Africa. Huge. Yeah, for like for like a two-year stretch. It, it kicked back up, and yeah. obviously now we have units deployed yeah. dealing with those things, But and the, everything's morphed since then. But at the time, it was fairly significant. And uh, for me, it was, it was just personally nothing to do with your original question, but for me, it was the most significant event I was ever a part of. And, yeah. and again, I was lucky. I was a part of so many things. I mean, I got to capture the dictator of a country like that was incredible. And yeah. I, th I thought that would be the biggest moment for me, but it wasn't. Somalia was because of the significance of being the first green guy back in Somalia. Number two, because just a handful of dudes and some interagency folks and some intel folks planned and executed an operation, super high risk in a place where no one was, where we had limited assets, and we ended up being incredibly successful with none of us getting hurt. All the Somalis, for the record, all the, all the guys that were on our side that were wounded, you know, Phil the Seal, uh, you know, Phil should have got a much bigger award than he did for that. I mean, I was on the horn with the rear and SATCOM, and it was ridiculous. Brady is talking to the boat. You know, Phil's plugging holes. I mean, he saved damn near every one of them dudes' lives by himself. Wow. I mean, we helped where we could in between calls, but, yeah. but you know, that dude, Johnny on the spot, was plugging holes, and we ended up flying all those guys back to Djibouti, and they got treated in Naval Hospital. They all survived. We returned them all to home. Um the joke of it is that's insane. 
Yeah, the, jo- the, the joke of it is, is like other three-letter agencies in our country do. They decided they wanted to reward the GT for, you know, helping us do this and an excellent job. And I think they gave him 250000 U.S. Yeah. Um, to kind of continue to facilitate the relationship. And we said, we don't think you should do that. Yeah. And they're like, why? And we're like, because he's basically a Somali warlord. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I just don't think it's going to go well. Right. Well, and the reason why he wanted to go in was because he knew they had weapons, he, which, of he, course, he wanted. Correct. Right. Because, yeah. because yeah. money and weapons were power in yeah. Somalia. Yeah, it was about status. Yeah. And he didn't really care. Like, And he didn't think about the reality of dying. or They just look yeah. at it differently. And um, so they they did. They didn't listen, and they gave him $250,000. He had, like, six kids. He yeah. fled the country, and they never heard from him again. Wow. I bet he lives in New York City. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> you know, or, like, Michigan, or he's yeah. a cab driver in Maine or something. Oh, you know, there's a lot of Somalis in New England. I don't, you know what I mean? But but that was I don't say that part very often, but that, we thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. He was, he was, really, he was a really good dude. I, I, I mean, he, he in the middle of that gunfight on his little handheld radio with three bullet holes in him, he helped us yeah. pull in those gun teams. And I mean, he was a big part of that too. There was, we had a lot of things go our way that day that could have gone very, very bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I attribute that to basically the two guys that were with me, like amazing dudes. Chris, we could probably sit here and talk to you literally for another couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, we've been at it for quite a while now and I mean, I'd love to, if nothing else, have you back on, continue maybe a part two. I think there's still a whole lot of stuff that we can talk about. Um, certainly want to talk to you after you come back from some of these trips and stuff, because I think it'll be really cool um, to talk about that. And then what you guys went through and experienced, even through some of the interchange of different countries, the challenges, how you ended up coming out of that and feeling, you know. Yeah, fingers crossed. Ecuador just opened back up to climbers a couple of months ago. Yeah. So awesome. hopefully nothing goes bad between now and then and we get to do that. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. It was great to meet you both. Uh, I appreciate you, what you guys are doing. Um, keep telling people stories, man, because it helps. I'll keep sharing yours. It does as well. Yeah, thanks.